In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Tom Sidlotic, and today we are going to be talking about Harry Dresden. We are going to break down the second Dresden novel and the cooperative card game. In the back half of the show, we are interviewing David M. Ewalt, author of Of Dice and Men and The People Who Play It and Defying Reality, the inside story of the virtual reality revolution. Joining me for the discussion today are my amazing wife, Phoenix. Hi. And OIO first-timer, John Munch. Hello. Welcome to the show, guys. John, you've done a couple episodes of Tom and Joey Unfiltered with me. How does it feel to finally make the big time? Ah, it's nice to be pulled up to the big leagues. You know, it's uh, a little bit, you know, nervous, nerve-wracking. There's been some, some, some big people in the chairs around here, so they have to follow in and come after Billy. You know, and Scott, this is, you know, a little nervous, but I think I'll do all right. Yeah. Any other friends from that friend group that you'd like to mention by name? No, nobody else. Nobody else. Oh, Casper. I'll mention Casper. Yeah. Yeah. You should know the deal by now. You're on the show for the first time. Tell me something that you like about OIO. One, you talk about board games, which I don't have a local gaming group since I've moved. And... Just getting to hear people who love board games talk about playing board games is awesome, and I love it. And then also, the interviews you pull in are fantastic, right? Because it's great to hear and talk to and hear you talk to people who are, like, behind the creation of games that we like to play. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, getting Jamie Stegmeier last year was an awesome get, and Bug Hunter was a lot of fun, and I'm really excited for David Ewald. You mentioned that you moved. You live in Indiana. You're the first person not in the state of Minnesota that we've had record, even when we're doing virtual. That's right. That's right. I am I am way far away. I used to be in Minnesota. Used to be in Minnesota, but not anymore. So, yeah. no nowhere in, in Fort Wayne. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What kind of games are you into? I, I really play a little bit of everything. Uh, I, you know, I tend to gravitate toward role-playing games just because I like a really good story. Anything that has a really good story and role-playing game elements, I'm going to be you know, tied into. High fantasy type stuff I love, orcs, goblins, D&D, right? That's just kind of my wheelhouse. And it really depends upon what I have for, like, timing, right? Is it a week where I can sit and play the Switch? Great, I'm playing Hyrule Warriors, or do I have 10 minutes? I might play, you know, something on my phone real quick, like Cat uh, Quest, you know. And I am contractually obligated to ask you about two specific games. Number one, what are your thoughts on the Final Fantasy VII Remake? I loved it. It was fantastic. It's one of the few games this year I bought at like full price. Got it right when it came out. Amazing. I'm excited for the next one, you know. And I'll get lots of time to play it because when it comes out, my kids will probably be in college. Or I might be a grandparent. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, man. Isn't that wild to think about being a grandparent? My daughter is too. Our daughter is too. So we have some time to think about that. <laughs> yes, we do. All right. We'll get to you soon, Phoenix. But one last thing that I just have to ask John about. What's your take on Super Mario Odyssey? Like greatest game of all time or what? It's fantastic, and it's I am so good. beyond excited that we are going to be getting Super Mario World 3D Odyssey with uh, the new Bowser uh, Bowser's Fury, right? Because that's what the trailer looks like to me, it's Super Mario World 3D. So I loved it. It's fantastic. It's the first, like, 
Mario game my daughters have really gotten into, besides me saying play the original Mario when they were like four. So, you know, it's got a special place in my heart. But, oh, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's, I love everything about it. It's like a masterpiece. Something's broken in your brain. Totally. (laughs) Or your heart. It's great Mario. And turning to my amazing wife, Feeney, you haven't been on since our Bill and Ted episode. What have you been up to? Well, um, we're expecting our second child. Woo, baby! <laughs> um, but mostly, um, we finished our first season of Discovery, and that was actually a very well done sci-fi show. I love Discovery. I know you love like, Discovery. It was probably a solid 9-5 out of 10 for me. Where did it come for you, love? I would say about the same for a sci-fi show. I just didn't have the Star Trek feel to me. It just didn't have the same format as traditional Star Trek shows had, so it was kind of hard for me to get into it a little bit. But as a sci-fi show as a whole, it's pretty incredible. And the story, the twist, the turns, the action, everything. Such a good twist in the first season. I pegged that one early, and I didn't even have to take a thousand guesses for it. Like, I <laughs> I just got an inkling, and I was dead on. And I just loved how you hated um, the female captain i can't remember her name at the beginning yeah uh georgia well i can't remember her last name but you loved how they twisted her at the end yeah (laughs) basically there's alternate dimensions and so you see a version of this captain in one dimension i'm like i hate her i just i really hate her and then you see her later and like she's a completely different version of herself i'm like oh yeah yeah that's pretty good yeah (laughs) i've been actually i just saw a trailer for a new movie that i wouldn't mind seeing it's a south korean film called space sweepers and it looks pretty good what looks interesting to you? You love Asian films. I do. You haven't shared too many with me. I you shared the no. good, the bad, and the weird with me. That was really good. That one is great. Um, I, you know, I guess with um, foreign films, you know, the subtitles. Some people are into them. Some people aren't. You I know? have the hardest time when there's words on the screen. I know like, you if do. there's closed captions, like I'm just reading whatever we're watching. Like I can't do it. <laughs> After a while, my mind just switches. I think they're talking, so it's unconscious switch, but. Um, it's a comedy space action. The effects look great. It was a trailer on Netflix I saw. You know, almost kind of remind me of Firefly, but not really. So it'll be interesting to check it out. And then there's a little blurb for that. I want to see it. It looks interesting. Yeah, like it's like the spaceship coming across. I saw that same sort of trailer. Yeah, it looks really good. And some of the humor with the robot was pretty funny. So. It'll be good to check it out. So, And it was dubbed in English already, so we can try it and see what nice. we see. <laughs> it's Tom friendly. <laughs> We're going to have a dub versus sub fight on OIO. Yes. <laughs> it's just got to be dubbed for me. Words are too distracting. Like, once I start reading something, like, I am completely focused on the words and, like, I'm not watching what's happening above it at all. I'm like, that's a waste of our big TV, honey. I find it just interesting how your brain just doesn't switch because after a while, you, you kind of not notice the words anymore. But Oh, I notice nothing but the words. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, and then there was a show on BBC that I showed you the trailer for that hopefully we'll check out soon. I can't remember if it's called The Watch or something like that. But yeah. now, We also recently watched Wonder Woman 84, but we're saving that for our Wonder Woman yes, episode next month. Mm-hmm. Back-to-back months with Phoenix. This is going to be awesome. Before the baby. Before the baby, cramming in as many shows with you as possible. Yes. <laughs> Before we launch into the body of our show today, we want to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com. You can also follow us on social, email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. 
Follow me at Tom Sidlachik OIO on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I have Hobby Box Burns on here. F that guy. I was like, why is Joey on here? <laughs> your second wife has higher rating than your wife. Well, he's on like almost every show. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe I thought I was going to drop John in there. John, do you do social? No. No. no That's it, man. Yeah. No Twitter. This is John's entire digital uh, imprint. It's like you're a cybersecurity professional or some <laughs> wacky stuff. It, it, it must be. Yeah. You can also follow Feeny at Mrs. Underscore OIO on Twitter and at Mrs. Underscore Outside is Overrated on Instagram. Or follow the show at Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated. So here we go, launching into the second Dresden book, Full Moon. Now, as I was reading this, like, I've been working on this show for about a month or so. Like, I always thought it was called Full Moon. I had no idea it was Full Moon until, like, yesterday. That's right. You mentioned it at dinner. Yeah. It's like, oh, good. Well, at least I got the name of the book, right? That's a good start for the show. I love, I love the titles. That's one of the things I love about Dresden. The title is always... I was going back and reading a recent synopsis all the other night. I'm like, God, I just love how... It's a little pun. It's just a pun. Just a yeah. Bit. I thought Stormfront was really good, but... Uh, I guess Full Moon made me think of werewolves, and so I just replaced Fool with Full. Well, I think a lot of his titles do kind of give you an idea of what type of creature he's going to talk about in the books. Because Blood Rites, yeah. you know he's going to dwell into the vampires. I think, is it um, Grave Peril? That's the next book. Um, and that deals with more, I think, I'm trying Ghost. to remember, it's been so long ago, but yeah, Ghost, is it? I don't think the black cord is in that one, is it? Or um... I'm trying to remember where that comes in. There, it, it's it, they may in that one. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that's where um, Michael comes in is in the next book. So with the ghosts, but um... he's in the game. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. He does come in the next one because I was gonna try and reread the entire series from like start to finish, and like I got through like the first two books and started the third. Yeah, which is I think it's great for everyone. Yeah, it starts out when they're like in that hospital chasing that ghost. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of if you look at his titles, he is always giving you an idea of what the possibility is of what he's gonna delve into. So. And to catch our listeners up, the last time we saw Harry in Stormfront, he was battling a rogue warlock and trying to clear his name with a governing body of wizards. He stopped the distribution of a dangerous drug called Third Eye, and he saw his relationship with Chicago PD Police Lieutenant Karen Murphy fall apart after he withheld information in that book. He had he had some knowledge that he didn't share with her, and it just ruined their relationship. So now, here we are with Full Moon, Times are tough, business is tough, and Harry's not getting any work from the police. Murphy eventually ropes him in for a grisly murder at Gentleman Johnny Marcone's bar. A quick synopsis of the plot, which is like a hundred bullets. I tried to streamline it as much as I could. But here is the key action from Full Moon. Murph and Harry are on the outs. There's the grisly murder at Marcone's new bar. There is a confrontation between Murphy and the FBI at the crime scene. Murphy and Dresden track down the young alphas who are some kids in leather and it turns out they can turn into werewolves. Harry brews potions and gets lessons on werewolves from Bob, one of my favorite characters. Harry learns about the Street Wolves, which is a gang of thugs in Chicago. He goes and pokes around their hangout. It doesn't go particularly well. Uh, Gangster Johnny Marcone offers to hire Harry. Harry rebuffs the offer and uh, learns to investigate something called Harley McFinn and the Northwest Passage Project. 
Boy, this is getting so difficult. I'm trying so hard to rush through these. You don't need to rush too fast. Oh my god, I gotta go. <laughs> you can take <laughs> a little bit of time, because... <sighs> I don't think the listener could keep up that fast. Yeah, okay, true. Anyways, Dresden makes a deal with the demon, and he learns that McFinn is unlikely to have killed all the victims, so he's trying to find out who the real culprit or culprits are. Harry is summoned to McFinn's house where his sometimes apprentice is dead and Murphy has a note linking the two. They had just been together at the very beginning of the book and, uh, well, Murphy loses her mind over it. So she blows up on Harry. She arrests him. Uh, Harry has to have another character help him escape, but he gets shot in the process. The other character, Tara, delivers Harry to McFinn. And it turns out that McFinn is the loop guru, the worst kind of horrible monster werewolf. He had a pet in his house that was supposed to keep him locked up during full moons, but somebody broke it and basically unleashed this monster in Chicago. Murphy and the FBI track down the fugitives. They capture McFinn, which sounds like just a great idea. So Harry has to go to the police station where there's an epic showdown between the wizard, Chicago Police Department, and the monster. Uh, Harry winds up escaping from that, and while he has a brief moment of rest after that fight, he has an encounter with his own subconscious which was super interesting. Then he's captured by the street wolves, and then Marcone has to swoop in and save Harry. There's a huge werewolf battle. You learn that the FBI is using magic belts to turn into werewolves. Then Billy convinces... Uh, Billy is another character. He's one of the young alphas. He convinces Harry to let the new crew join him for the final confrontation. Basically a bunch of college kids in a fight between the FBI, a crime lord, a wizard, and the big bad monster. Susan and Harry bang, and then there is the final showdown at the Marcone estate. Wow, that is a lot of stuff. It is. It sure is. It's and it's a quick book. It's a quick read. It is a quick read. Yeah. I mean, the way he writes, you read through it very quickly. It is yeah. so action-packed. Did I, first off, did I miss any of the key points? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, you covered the majority of everything there. Yeah. yeah. Now, this book was released in 2001. This is my first time going through it, and I just love the Dresden books. These have been so fun. I'm so bummed that I didn't like learn about these a long, long time ago. I thought we'd spend some time talking about some of the most interesting plot points. Um, John, do you want to start us off with one? Yeah, so, you know, some of the really the things I dig in this one was I loved... The, the different worlds and like just the sheer power of the loop guru, right? Just how vicious, crazy, uh, dangerous it was. Like, I will always remember that precinct fight because that is just like the, the, the plotting and like the setup of that entire fight is so cool with uh, the potion Dresden uses and all that sort of cool stuff. And then rereading this because I read these back, I, I, I forget how I stumbled upon them. But I read these back in like 2006, 2007, a long time ago. And I was like going through them really, really quick. So rereading the first two here, especially this one, you start to see those glimmers of what is going on more so in the Dresden universe. So, you know, you mentioned uh, when he talks to his subconscious, that was really cool to reread after knowing where that's going to go down the line. So it's cool to kind of, you know, go back in and see some of these things. And I just, I love the the loop back with Marcone at the end of the book, so. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the loop guru a little bit more. This is, 
Early on, Harry is talking with Bob, which is a spirit who lives in a skull and helps Harry out with some stuff. And you learn all about the different types of werewolves in the world. And it turns out the Loop-Garou is like the biggest, baddest monster out of all of them. It's like, it's what I think of when somebody mentions a werewolf. It's like this out-of-control beast in the full moon that just kills everything in its vicinity, basically. That's true. And I I don't know if it always starts with a curse or McFans was started with the curse. I'm not sure if they clarify that with Bob, but... Yeah, I can't remember. But, yeah, no, it's... You know, it's like what we envision with werewolves, but I think maybe to the nth degree, I think he's even more than what we envision with werewolves. But. And it's interesting, like, he's the big monster in the book, but he isn't necessarily the big bad. He's not the big bad. No, he's not. No, he's not. Not this time. So yeah. it's kind of just this big obstacle that's uh, in the way while Harry's trying to solve this investigation. I thought that was an interesting way to use a big monster with the Luke Guru. That is very true. Yeah. And, you know... Butcher does a good job of setting you up to say, hey, this looks like he's the bad guy, and then looping it back around to like, oh, okay, I see where the real bad guys were, and I can kind of see how, how he was setting those up, too, and you you know it could be one person, it could be another person, who's it going to be, and then you get that big moment in the end of all his books where it's like, oh, boom, 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 and it all lines up, and everything that you thought about Yep, all those things click, or you miss those things. Or you think about that one thing, like Murphy picking up a piece of paper in the bar in the very first chapter, right? How all that comes back around, and that, that's just awesome. I love how Butcher does that. Yeah, it's really masterful. Phoenix, one of your favorite characters is Tara West. Tell us a little bit about this character and her role in the book. Uh, it turns out she is McFinn's um, fiance. She's trying to get Harry to help them contain McFinn when the full moon's around because his pen was destroyed and you know when I first read the book and when I got to that ending page where he basically tells you huh it never occurred to me that a wolf can turn into a human form it's like oh my goodness he did a whole nother switch again with the whole different type of um, beings or creatures that can be out there and you know Rereading it, you can see the hints that he gave that she wasn't exactly like the others, you know, her amber eyes, the way she's her to understand human uh, conversation very well. Well, even beyond that, Harry has an ability when he looks someone in the oh, eyes, right. like they look into each other's soul. And when he looked into her, like there was nothing there. So he knew she wasn't human. He knew that she was something else. She he just assumed she was like a demon or something from the never never. Yeah, I forgot about that. But yeah, it's just it was. A very fascinating character, and it was amazing to see him do another switch like that. You know, he didn't stop, you know, after, you know, before the confrontation with the switches or the surprises. He did it at the end again with another little surprise at the end. So, John, what are your thoughts on Tara? Does she come back at some point down the line, or is she just a one-and-done character? Uh, I'm pretty sure she's one-and-done. Yeah. Um, but... Like, that's another character where it's like, you're seeing, to me, the glimmer of, like, this world is bigger than just Dresden shooting fireballs in Chicago, right? You are seeing those, that little bit of what you're starting to lay those breadcrumbs up. Well, well, there is some really weird, big, bad stuff that never, never you mention and all that sort of stuff. So, um, she's a cool character. Uh, but, yeah, she, I don't, you know, uh, she's not in the later books for Lionel, but she's kind of that precursor of uh strange weird unearthly 
characters that you start to see that do stick around from book to book in the novels. She'd be a fan favorite if there was a Dresden show made on HBO. Yes, she would be. <laughs> Naked all the time. Yeah, she right. would be. I mentioned Bob was my favorite character earlier. There's a scene with Bob and Harry where Bob's laying out all the different types of werewolves, and it turns out they're all in this book. I thought that was interesting. I I was a little surprised that there weren't like either more types or that all the types were in this book. But going back and reviewing that chapter with Bob early on, like he basically laid out all the challenges Harry was going to face with the supernatural in this one. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Venus. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's very true. I mean, he kind of had... Bob has always been this, you know, in every book, he sort of gives a lot of information out. And so he can give you a glimmer of what's out there that's, like John's been saying, that there's this huge whole world out there that Jim is creating through his brain and Bob is just giving us little tidbits here and there. Bob's kind of the gateway. He is the gateway in ways, yeah. And let's not forget the best thing about Bob is the fact that, you know, he gets what he what he wants is to like, you know, romance novels. Yes. And <laughs> let me just let me loose and like, no, you were in that sorority house for like a whole day or whatever it was. So it's really funny because he's just that disembodied spirit that just wants to be let out. And the interaction between him and Harry is always fantastic. There, um, yep. And gets better as the books go along because you start to learn more about Harry's background and how he got Bob and what Bob actually is and was and was used for. Mm -hmm. That sounds so super interesting. Uh, John mentioned the epic showdown at the police station. It was three chapters in this book. This was a big freaking fight. Like it, uh, uh, characters died in it. Like it, uh, it was a pretty remarkable thing. And it was maybe two thirds of the way through the book. Like there was still a final confrontation after this. Good yeah, stuff. you mentioned someone died, right? And like that, I, like just hit me earlier when we were just talking about this, even on this this podcast, and just thinking about like, yeah, like Butcher decided to say, you know, uh, a prominent character. I'm going to go ahead and like, nope, he's done right here, and it really impacts the rest of the book and the relationship between Murphy and Dresden because it was a character that was kind of close to both of them. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting and close in different ways, like was not Dresden's buddy in any way, shape or form, but was a good guy that was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I like how you have that level in that precinct fight of here is this crazy, like a werewolf is legit running through and like ripping doors off walls and the prisoners are freaking out and like all this stuff is happening. And like, all these normal people are like here experiencing this and you have like a couple cops that kind of know stuff the specials investigation unit and harry is like the one person that can do anything to stop them all and and, and help and save them and he's just like trying the best he can right with this insanity in a downtown chicago police department station it's just really cool how those two worlds blend it is and it's interesting also like john was saying that you have um these cops being confronted with the supernatural being when they make fun of Harry to the book saying, are you, are you sure you're a wizard? You're not <laughs> like, you know, a joke. And all of a sudden they're faced with this thing head on and they, you know, some of them go kind of crazy. The one young rookie that was supposed to keep him in the office, you know, who sort of helps Harry he has to snap him out of his, um, well, Harry's loopy anyways, he's laughing, but 
it's like um, these normal people are confronted with something that they just don't want to believe even though they see it with their own eyes and I think Jim Butcher does a great job of that um, you know making the book feel like it's taking place now you know if we were confronted with something like that and how we would react to it he doesn't make it totally I would say complete fantasy in a sense because he keeps it tied to humans and what they how they would react to the situation they have a lot of nuance it's not just fantasy it's not just gritty detective there's a lot of good humor too uh, in the scene we were just talking about with the rookie the rookie like tries to tell Harry that he's under arrest um, when Harry's going to confront the, confront the monster and Harry just says I can't be under arrest right now and walks out yeah like, there's a lot of good little moments. There's some funny moments in an otherwise uh, kind of gritty and like almost overbearingly violent novel. And that's what I've always enjoyed about um, Jim Butcher, um, even like the Iron Druid series. You know, people that can take this grittiness, this darkness, and just throw this kind of humor in there. And that's what I enjoy about authors that write books like this. Because when they sprinkle in that humor, it can be a really fun book, even though it gets really dark. Yeah. Well, one more plot point that I wanted to talk about. I didn't expect the uh, spoiler alert. Here it is. I didn't expect the FBI to be the bad guys. Like Butcher caught me completely off guard with that. Like they have these magic belts that are turning them into wolves, and they are just slashing bad guys that they can't get at through the law. And it is wild. Like they are turning into monsters. Well, it's cool how you know he made those the the hexen belts that they were using. Right? They were addictive. It was that drug. And you see, there. if you go back and read it a second time, you see their degradation throughout the book. And I love the throwback to like the very first interaction between Murphy and those FBI agents because you can see where, like, you know, oh, hey, uh, this is where Carmichael and I forget the female FBI agent's name. Like, there's that, you know, why they took Murphy down in the way they did. Because if they didn't, she was going for the belt, and that would have been horrible, and all that sort of stuff that's going through. So, yeah, it was, it's always good. I always love it when they make the good guy the bad guy in the end. It's, always, it's done well. It's just such a fun switch, and it was done well in here. And they, I feel like it, you dislike them so much, and by the end of the book, you're like, yes, they're going to get, like, they're, they got them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, rereading the second time and like the scene John was talking about, it's like, oh yeah, I can see the subtle hints that Jim was putting in there that there was something going on with that group. And how did you like the surprise? I loved it. I thought it was uh, just so good. Like I, I take so many guesses in any mystery situation. Like usually just by sheer numbers game, I get the magic answer at some point but i never suspected the fbi until the big fight at the uh full moon oh and with macone and the street wolves yeah yeah so yeah no it's a very surprise uh twist and like john has mentioned earlier it's just jim is able to keep it hidden from you until you get towards the end you might start guessing but he does an excellent job of keeping things kind of hidden for those that are good at guessing. So. Another interesting thing he did here, after this big fight at the precinct, Harry gets captured and he gets beat up, and uh, basically he spends all of his magical reserves, like all of his energy, and he is tapped out for the final confrontation. Like he is basically a shell of his 
uh, full self, and he's trying to stop this monster and stop the evil FBI agents. And uh, it, I'm kind of stealing your thunder here because you put this on the show notes, but well, I just I was gonna ask John if he remembers. I don't quite remember Harry ever getting tapped out again like this in other books, or if this was the only book he gets tapped out. I don't know if he's ever fully, fully tapped out but like there's a whole there's a you know there is another there's another book where like he does lose a good chunk of his power okay. um and but i mean this is you know and we'll talk more about this when we get into the game at least from my opinion is like there's a there's a you know a, a, a process with a dresden book and there usually is that moment where harry is down yeah and he's out and the whole world is against him yeah and then he has to rally back somehow some way he finds something to dig that extra inch deeper and he comes back and they're like oh, okay that was amazing like or somebody helps him or somebody saves him like there's usually and it's it's not a MacGuffin, right it's not like oh and he had an extra thing in his bag of holding yeah, and no. <laughs> this magic spell it's it's something earned yes right so it's really cool how he does that where it's something earned and it has impact or it's a sacrifice he makes or this or that and that becomes really important later on in the book where you really see Dresden make sacrifices make mistakes and then come back from those mistakes right and just continue to grow as like you know wizard in his power but as like a, a human being and what he's trying to do yeah and that's what I was bringing up with Tom the other day it's like with Harry Dresden it's like he he in every book he just gets down to the lowest point and he doesn't know how he's going to finish it or be able to save the world or save Chicago or save the people and you know and it's like you said he kind of something comes it's not like um, a, a Jack Reacher book where he can get himself out of the situation because of something comes up or like a Clive Cluster book where I can't remember the the main hero's name but you know he always seems to have like a macgyver thing that gets him out of the situation where harry you know he has something because of he talked to the right person or he earned trust or something it just comes together for him in the end so there's what like 20 dresden books 15 20 i, I think there's 17 or 16 it looks like he's going to end at 20 bunch of like graphic novels and short yeah. stories and stuff too so there's a lot of content uh having only read two of these books how many times <laughs> can the world be against harry like how many times can all the odds be stacked against him like does that uh become formulaic at some point no not when mm -hmm. i was reading them but... the stakes get higher um sometimes the stakes get more personal yeah and right now the world is small it gets way way bigger interesting well that's very intriguing well let's hold yeah. our thoughts for the future uh where it goes from here let's talk about some of the characters from full moon i just said full moon it's fool moon yeah. fool moon i pity the fool moon i think the big one to start with is murphy the relationship is strained at the start of the book i mean i i only had one book of history with con or with murphy phoenix what were your thoughts on this relationship and how it carried um, over from Stormfront and how it evolved in this in Full Moon. Well, I can see how it evolved to this point, but I don't know, rereading it reminded me how much I did not like Murphy's character that much. I've read a lot of these books a lot, while ago, um, but I think later in the books I start to 
gradually softened to her character, but especially this one, I don't know, it just, I, re she really bugged me a lot, especially the way she arrested him and didn't trust him, and I understand her point of view and stuff, but I just thought it was kind of over the top for me, but that's just me, but, um. And John, what are your thoughts? I, I echo that completely. I think that Butchard maybe didn't know quite know what to do with her just yet. She was more of a, you know, look, uh, spoilers, but they don't have their Sam and Diane relationship going on yet. A little bit. There's a little bit of the will they won't they in these two books. And I don't know if Butcher was trying to, you know, I'm going to make her just like hate Dresden now to create some conflict, right? He needed to have that conflict. To me, it always reads off a little bit of like, you know, Murphy, you're a pretty smart detective here. You know, use your big brain that you use all over the place. Like, like, put two and two together. Why are you so mad? You yeah. know why Dresden's doing what he's doing now, right? Why are you taking this so personal? And, and you know, I've there's two trains of thoughts on, you know, one, she's just being stubborn, and then there's that. Or two is she's frustrated with Dresden because, like, he doesn't have to sacrifice or do these things or take it all on his own. But... It's never really made clear in those first few books because they're at such odds. They're best buds, and then they're at real odds throughout those two. And I agree. I never liked that relationship in these two. I love it the rest of the series. I didn't mind the uh, controversy between them so much. Like I had a lot of empathy for where Murphy was coming from. And, uh, I mean, yeah, it was over the top, and it was extreme. Like It was maybe silly to arrest your best tool for stopping this monster, but... I don't know. I empathize with Murphy trying to do the best she can with the information that she had. Well, I guess I could see your point. It's just, I guess for me, it's like it's hinted at that they've worked together on so many cases before we read the first book that you'd think at this point she would understand him a little bit better. You know, if Stormfront was the very first time that she worked with him, I could see why she would get so pissed right away in the second book. But they had a working relationship before we read um, Stormfront, so... I have two moments that pop immediately to mind thinking about the relationship in this book specifically. In the big fight at the precinct, the Luke Guru is coming at Harry and Murphy step, steps in between him and shoots the Luke Guru with Silver. And then at, in the final confrontation, she, Harry thinks she's going to shoot him, but instead she is shooting a threat behind him. So I, as sour as the relationship got, I love that Murphy was there when uh, Dresden needed her the most. Oh yeah, and she becomes well. yeah, and she becomes yeah. a character that does show up every once in a while that you know helps him out. So and and maybe that's her growth arc, right? You know, she is going more for hey, I got to stick on a cop first and a friend second. And as things get bigger and she grows, she learns that hey, you know what? I can be bold. Maybe and maybe that's what what she's trying to do because yeah she definitely and and you know like her dad was a cop and she's made fun of because she's the head of special investigations and she's a, a female detective right so like she's on like several like there's the bottom totem pole and then there's another totem pole below that she's kind of on because she's special investigations so mm -hmm. you know she's highly scrutinized there's a lot of pressure and people are dying so i see her points but i'm just kind of like that frustration and anger seems to be an angle at dresden when he was probably her best shot to fix things yeah yeah like you said, Tom, don't arrest your best your your number one tool here yes yeah, so. <laughs> sticking with law enforcement 
Let's talk a little bit about Agent Denton from the FBI. He was the head of this squad of FBI agents, which kind of makes him the head of the enemy. But I thought he was a pretty interesting character because they have these magic belts that are capable of turning them into wolves, capable of killing like anything. And uh, he seemed to resist the call best. Like, I thought his situation was very interesting. Ultimately, they made some sort of deal to get these belts to have a way to get at the bad guys they couldn't get through the law. At the end, when the soul gaze um, between the two of them, you really see the depth of the character and what he's gone through and what he's fed up with as far as the bad guys always getting away, not being able to... You know, he just felt like the law meant nothing, and so he just couldn't stand by to watch bad guys continue to wreak havoc. And so, him being this person that has principles, but to look past those principles to get a belt to try to attack these people through supernatural means is kind of an interest. It makes it for a very interesting character. You know, he tried to keep his principles, but then he let his principles aside when he had this opportunity to have this belt so it's kind of cool to look at it from that standing of like i'm doing the i'm doing this for like the right reasons right but like you know all right well now i killed one bad guy and now i killed another and i killed another and you can just see the belt tainting them and eating away at their humanity right so interesting to see and like yeah he, he held on the longest and you're seeing all these other people just like no fully give in to this like feralness because they've lost humanity and how you could like take the belt away and just have it be I'm just going out and being a vigilante killing bad guys that ignore bad that got off and how that could do the same thing. Very interesting villain. Also villainous, Gentleman Johnny Marcone. I love this character. This is like the most Tom character. If I was going to portray somebody in the Dresden universe, make me Gentleman Johnny. What do you love about him so much? He is so suave. He always knows what to say. I mean, he's a bad gangster. Dresden hates him because he's basically like the crime lord of Chicago. But he's got kind of, he's got good bedside manner. Like, he's very polite. He's very thoughtful. He's very thoughtful in uh, how he tries to do business. And he's very ruthless to get his way when he needs to be. Like, I think he's just, he's so polished and like shiny when he's standing in front of you but also so cold-hearted and ruthless when he has to be i think that's so interesting in a villain and he wasn't necessarily the villain in this he was he was a target for not only the big bad monster but also for the fbi and the final showdown they're trying to lure the monster to his house so that the fbi can kill them all in one false swoop i mean john could talk more about Mal- malcone and the other books but i think throughout the series he and Harry have a very complex relationship um, through the books. I mean, they're at each other, then they help one another. It's just, it's a very complex relationship that I think it's great to have in the books. But I, I think John can talk more about Malcolm. Before we get to John, I love how Harry antagonizes him by calling him John. Like, it's great. A oh. big crime lord who, uh, what does he go by, Gentleman Johnny or by Marcone? But, like, Dresden just calls him John to annoy him. Yeah. Marcone, he's my favorite. He's my favorite bad guy in the entire book because he's not always the bad guy, like you said. And I think it's that nuance because, that makes him so interesting. Sorry, go on. He's just a human, right? And that's where, like, as you read and you go further, you really see, like, how bad he is. 
because he's just a human. Everybody else has something going on. Like I'm a magic user, I'm some, I'm a, I'm a fairy, or I'm like you know half ogre, or half vampire, something. He's just like, nope. I'm just like smart, like conniving, evil, you know, gangster. But he gets his way into like these high, high powerful positions across the never, never fay, all this sort of stuff. So like he gets better and better. And the relationship between Dresden and Marcone just continues to be that sort of like uh, they're always going to butt heads. Dresden hates him. You know, Batman Joker, right? They're just not as crazy. Uh, <laughs> I, I love him. He's fantastic. I agree completely with you, John. That's a good analogy, Batman and Joker type relationship. You know. Yeah, it is. In this book, they also hint that he is on a bigger scale than Dresden maybe thinks. Because I think the FBI talks about him owning like congressmen and judges and like having influence outside of Chicago. Dresden just views him as a Chicago lowlife at the top of the totem pole. And I will say there's some scenes later on in the in the series that give actually give Marcone some humanity. Right? He's like there's there's specific reasons why he's doing certain things. And I don't want to get into them because it's kind of spoilery and, and it's just but it's just there's small moments that make his character even more interesting because he's not just bad guy trying to take over the world or take over Chicago or be a mobster. There's other motivations that push him, which is cool. Fascinating. Well, if he's got this high elevated position, why doesn't like a wizard just come and kill him and take his place or something? I I think John might have a... Oh, well, that's because that would go against the Accords, right? Isn't that what it's called? The Accords? Yeah, that's right, wizards yeah. Wizards can't just kill people, people but yeah, a demon can't. or right. something from the that's Never That's the whole thing about Dresden, too, is he's always under the knife because the Wizard Council is always out for him because when he was a kid, he killed a guy in self-defense. So you forget about those little things. But yeah, you can't kill somebody if you're a wizard. Uh, and you're a bad wizard. You'll be in the, under the Accords, and then... Mm-hmm. What's-his-name shows up with a giant sword? Morgan. Morgan, that's right. Yeah, Morgan. He comes back. There are so many characters in this book. Is, are there any more we want to talk about before we move on? I mean, we hit all of my favorites. I guess maybe McFinn a little bit. McFinn is this monster. Like, is he immortal, or is he, like, a regular human dude who just turns into a monster on a full moon? I forget how the curse worked. I think he's it's a family curse. It's a family curse that gets passed down generation to generation, and I think he is not immortal. Well, I guess he's definitely not immortal because he dies. But he's rich, (laughs) and that's the whole point of like that Northeast Passage is he's just trying to make a like protect a piece of land. That's how Marcone gets pulled in because Marcone has ties to the land and all that, so he can have a place where him and Tara can just go, and he doesn't worry about hurting people. But yeah, I don't know if he was. I don't know if he's immortal, but I know it was like a generational curse that was passed down. That's right, and part of the curse was that the bloodline would never die out. So even yeah. though they stopped the Luke crew here, there's another one now. Like, maybe they should have investigated the family at the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think we've talked a lot about the characters. Um, the I- young alphas, Billy and Georgia, like, they played a role in this book. I would say they were side characters. Are they a bigger part in the fiction or are they I'm, one and done characters i remember them showing up more often in books but um, they become part of like harry's crew yeah harry plays, harry plays dungeons and dragons with them like literally that's like takes place so that's cool i love the alphas i think it's a cool cool thing to kind of bring people in but yeah they, they take place and they're in the other books i don't know if you guys want to talk about susan at all oh yeah let's talk about susan there's a love scene in this book i had a note about this too the uh in between 
the frenetic action of this book going from the precinct fight to the street wolves fight to the final confrontation there is a moment of levity where harry and his friend associate woman that he knows susan who's also briefly in the first book uh they hook up i mean she's an interesting character it's like going back to the whole karen thing um I, you know, they don't have a working relationship. They have more of a personal relationship. But when Harry calls her up and needs something, she doesn't... She slightly questions, but not really. She's there for him. She helps him out. But she also wants something in return a little bit because she's a she's reporter. She's going to get the story. Yeah, right? she wants she's the story. She's also going to get the story. She always gets something. Yeah, she gets something, but... She got something in this book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she got there. She picked him up. She drove him. She, you know, was... I always seem to be there to help him in in his need so and that means need in multiple <laughs> yeah you're the romantic honey i know i am <laughs> no i i do enjoy the um relationship between the two and it really becomes interesting later in the books but yeah it's hard to say any more beyond that without spoiling too much for you john what do you think of the sex interlude in this book <laughs> You know, it does sell. Uh, no, but it fits. Um, I think it's actually because in Stormfront, don't they get like trapped together? In- they yeah. do. Yeah. She uh, yeah. she so drinks the potion. She drinks the love potion, and so like yes. I think she's naked and hanging on his leg while he's trying to fight off the toad demon. Yeah. So it's yeah, you get a little closure from that, and I think that you know, it's good to see like way to go, Harry. Like, there's some normalcy for this poor guy. Things are looking up. (laughs) Right? A a shining beacon of something going right in this book. Imagine you guys didn't know the future history of this franchise. Like, imagine, like, they have sex, and then Dresden goes out for the final confrontation. Assume he dies. What if the, like, books follow Susan from that point on? I think that would have been a great angle for Butcher to go. That would be cool. That That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Didn't happen. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think of Susan? Because you have only read the two books with her. Um, I'm pretty blah on her so far. Like, I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. Like, she is someone that Dresden relies on, and I always like the hero's buddies. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I haven't formed much of an opinion on her. Okay. She's useful in the game, but we'll get there later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a huge cast of characters in this game, and it sounds like the cast is only going going to expand in future books. Oh yeah. Where does Dresden go from here? Like, uh, how epic does this storyline get? Maybe we can avoid the biggest spoilers in the franchise, but well, every book almost has a spoiler to it, so it's kind of um... sure. And it seems like every book introduces another element of the supernatural. You guys were talking about this a little mm-hmm. bit. Later on, like, I guess we're going to have ghosts. I know that a Tyrannosaurus Rex comes to life. Um, apparently there's angels and uh, fairies and different courts of vampires. So, like, well, Yeah, you got the fallen angels, which is an interesting storyline with Harry um, and Michael and his... Uh, are they Knights Templar or are they... I can't remember what Michael... No, it's not Knights Templar, but it's something similar. Yeah. Right. Let me ask... Maybe, maybe this is an ever-expanding universe, and uh, one of my knocks on George R. R. Martin is like he just sprawled too much. Is that what happens with Dresden, or are you happy with the way that Jim Butcher keeps introducing new elements of the supernatural? Well, I mean, Chicago stays, you know, the same. It's just what's 
over Chicago. The nether, never, 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 never. Yeah, it's 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 really about like the never, never and the Leanne Shane. Or I can never, I don't know how to pronounce. It. I can read it. I can't say it. But it's basically you know, all the fairies and the never, never. And that really is like that's and you only see that like that the the court like the white court and then like the stuff around Chicago. So it doesn't really get huge and. Once you kind of get into like uh, the summer night cycle, where you really start diving into the fairy areas, it stays in that. It stays in that, and you you see the same characters coming back in. So once you're in, it's you're not like you don't need a uh, a flowchart to remember. Oh, who is this guy, and why was this? Like, oh no, it's very very clear who these people are. And the circle space type, while. You do see, like, you know, a little bit of level up here and there with different areas and different things. Um, it always kind of stays core to kind of like that same setting in Chicago in that area. So, John, I think what you're saying is that the Dresden Files are a better series than A Song of Ice and Fire. Is that what I'm hearing? Hey, I would say yes. I would say yes, but I can't. You know, I've only watched the TV show. I haven't read the books yet. So, oh man, you've got to read Game of Thrones. Like the first book is so good. The first three books are just incredible. After that, you can throw them in a dumpster and light them on fire. But the first three books are so good. You know, though it's 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 a pacing thing, and I think we both talk like we talk about, and, and you know, we all kind of said why we love Dresden. We kind of said it's it's all about Dresden's pacing. We mentioned, you know, we can you can read through these, you can burn through these books so fast and like get it and understand it. And but at this point in my life, I don't need to like have a book where I'm reading and rereading and rereading to try and like, who is that? And what was, uh, uh, right? I want, boom, boom, engage. And if I'm reading fiction, I want to be engaged in that way and like have like a cool hook and uh, a really nice tight contained story that just works on several levels and characters that I care about within that. And the Dresden Files does that. Yeah. Maybe Song of Fire and Ice will for me as well one day when I read it, but... I'm also season eight ruined me, so maybe I'll just never go back and just walk away. Yeah, I mean that's I feel the same way. I mean the Dresden books to me, I love the fast pacing, I love the action. Those are the type of books I enjoy. And with the Dresden books, you know, like John said, they you know each story ends, but you have inklings of what could be a broader storyline in the background going on. And that's one of my brother's complaint about the Dresden stories. It's like, there's no, like, long, linear storyline going on and on. And it's like, Odin, I don't need that. I just want, you know, a single story to read. I'm not a wheel time girl. I'm not a person, like, that needs this long fantasy story to go on and on. So that's why I enjoyed about Dresden was that I didn't have to wait too long for the next, you know. I I always wanted to read the next book and was waiting for the next book. But, I mean, at least that novel had an ending per se you know you don't it's not there's some cliffhangers in some books but yeah it's just not but there's closure in every book closure closure thank you yeah closure you feel you feel there's a sense of satisfaction you feel you're not like you know it's it's you know it's it's empire where man there's so much open but i'm okay with where this ended yeah even though that's bad and i have so many more questions yeah don't make another one i'll be upset but this still ended really well. 
the end of the fifth book of Song of Ice and Fire, which came out in roughly 2008. It ends with a big cliffhanger that basically sheds a whole new light on the first four books altogether. And it's just like so brutal because he's never going to write another book. That's how the franchise ends in the written form. I love that Jim Butcher gives us closure with each book. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Another thing that I enjoy about the Dresden Files is Harry has such a good rapport with the reader. Like it just, I feel a connection with the narrator in it. And it's just so good and it's so easy. And I don't know, it's just, I don't feel that same connection with a lot of books that I read. Like I think Harry's a really interesting character and he's just so relatable. I mean, he, he doesn't quite break the fourth wall like Deadpool does, but you have a sense of it, you know, you have sort of that type of, you feel like you're connected to him, you know, he's, you're following along with him in the story. It's that it's that noir, the noir narrator. Yes. Right. Without it being like gritty, like you know, fifties gumshoe, but it is. It's kind of that it noir is. narrator. And I, I also love how I, I've I've never had any author maybe want to drink a Coca Cola <laughs> more than Jim Butcher. He has a way of like taking real world things and just like oh man that that coke sounds really good i really want you know because harry will come in and i'm drinking coke however he does it like things like that i love those real world applications he does and how he pulls in the real world setting into this you know crazy world i guess yeah that's one thing i like about the books too is um um it's not complete fantasy and you have the real world like john was saying and Especially the scene where he's trying to figure out how to stop the monster in the precinct. Yeah, and he figures out, oh, is there a stuffed animal? And the guy comes back with a Snoopy dog, and he's just thinking it's hilarious, but he's using the Snoopy dog to capture, you know. He thinks on his feet, he uses real world things, and that's what I enjoy about, you know, with the Bob scenes where they talk about the potions. A lot of the potions have actual real world ingredients it's not the like for the love potion they needed pages from a romance novel for the love and there's different ingredients that are tied to things in the real world yeah i mean there's stuff that he probably has to get that are you know magic bound but a lot of the magic in the book is a lot of real world the potions and stuff and i always found that enjoyable because when there's no weight to the magic yeah i mean like it's costly it costs or you're, you know, the way that, you know, Butcher describes magic in this book is cool, too, just, like, how it's used. It's not, you know, I mean, look, I love The Witcher, but it's oftentimes I was just reading that some tonight, and it's just like, you know, oh, Yen was wiggling her toes, and, like, what did, where did that come from? And she casts a spell by pointing her foot at these people. Like, great, this was a great story, but, like, when Dresden casts a spell, there's just, you know, this whole, like, the, his wand being the focal point and like his staff and like his shield bracelet and these things that he uses to like channel energy from within himself is just it's a very realistic take on magic and I think that sits well when I read the stories and I say eh, it's magic it works how it works <laughs> well as you read more books you'll find you know it just it gets very interesting in how he like the whole T-Rex in the one book you know can't remember why he needed something big but he needed something big and he couldn't think of what was big and then he remembers sue the t-rex in the natural museum so he has to break in and then he has to con- do this whole elaborate thing and he's riding the t-rex through chicago you know 
It's like he didn't take a wand out and says, oh, I want a T-Rex. Boom. And there it's that, you know, that's the thing that I enjoy about Harry has to like, oh, crap, what can I do? Are you saying that you hate Harry Potter, honey? No, it's (laughs) I don't hate Harry Potter. I just that's why I'm saying the difference between the series. It's like I enjoy something that has more um, reality. reality but you know <laughs> something it's more that, based in the real world yeah. real world that i can relate to and to be creative an author being creative thinking okay what can he use you know instead of saying oh he just whipped out his wand and created it jim put tried to sit there and think okay what can he do what can he find and what's in chicago yeah what's in chicago right. and yeah. what's in chicago and that that's a cool thing right like i'm gonna go to the shed aquarium but that's a real place in chicago yeah. he's not making these things up and that's just kind of a cool little you know hey i've been to that place in real world it's cool to see like i'm reading a book where he's yeah. been to that yeah, i've been there it's just neat yeah i that's what i enjoy you know and I guess that's why I enjoy books like these, like the Iron Druid and Dresden and others. It's because they take place in our world and I can relate to it easier versus like Game of Thrones. I think I would have a hard time because of the pacing, but also I have to create this whole world in my head and think of all these things. So that's one of the reasons I like these books. Well, they're very fun. I've been through two books, and I am very excited to read more Dresden. Before we move on to the game, is there anything else you guys want to talk about with Harry Dresden, this book specifically, or why we love the character or the franchise? I think I've covered pretty much everything. I mean, yeah. I can talk for hours. On yeah, we could. <laughs> well, we've got one down. A closing thought on the Dresden Files books. What is your favorite book in the series? For me, I've only read two. It's Full Moon. It's nice to reread these books and to enjoy them again. I remember when I was first reading them through, I kind of struggled with the first two books, and Owen's like, keep reading. It'll it'll hit its stride, and it did start hitting its stride, and Summer Night really kind of, really, yeah, just right, Summer Night was one of my favorites when I read it. It's like, yeah, this is a good series. I got to keep going, and, and, I really do enjoy Deadbeat too because of the T Rex scene, you know. That's and Butters. I love Butters. He's a great mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. So, mine is Death Masks, just because I feel like it introduces some of, like the, one of the best villains. Um, I love the Denarians, the Fallen Angels, all that stuff is so cool, and the impact that Lashiel has is totally awesome. Um, and that's all I'm going to say, and you'll figure out who that is later on and all that sort of stuff to read the books. But, like, it sets up several things down the line that's just a really cool growth moments for Harry. And just there's just some really cool fights and, like, these people who have these special powers teaming up with fallen angels. It's just, just cool. So I like that one. Oh, another thing I was wondering how you guys talking about Dresden and stuff and the magic, I guess, with other books that you've read um how dresden when he's near technology he can't he has to use everything old school you know yeah we talked about this a little bit in our harry wizard show but basically any electronic things malfunction around a wizard in the dresden universe yeah so i was just wondering what your thoughts are how they made him unable to use a lot of technology he has to use a beetle bug drive a bug around that's just these components of different things you know and john you want to feel this one first i think this is a fantastic choice that butcher made one 
because it makes these books so much better even today, right? So this is written in 2001. Who knows what book you thought about what the internet was going to be and this and that. But, right, like, it, it still translates because I don't have to worry about why I didn't rather just pull out a cell phone and take a picture. Like, you can't. Literally can't. So I love how that goes across. Um, and I love how it just kind of, it gives Butcher that ability to like then have like Dresden's apartment. And it's this cozy, like, he lives in a wizard hole, like a wizard <laughs> hobbit hole in Chicago. <laughs> and, like, he's able to set kind of these settings that are that when you think of wizard, you think of wizard, but he can set them in downtown Chicago. And because why is there no TV here? Well, you understand because there's no wizard. So I love that choice um, and some of the fun that it brings. Like, you know, Dresden, like, walking next to Murphy's computer. Like, she's unplugging her computer before he comes in. Right? Like, oh, you're going to fry my hard drive again. Right? <laughs> So I love, I, I think it's a great choice. Yeah, that's a very fun choice. And it's just an interesting wrinkle that sets this sort of magical universe apart from others. Yeah. Good stuff. The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher, 17 books long, fast, easy, fun reads. And like, I can't, I really can't get enough of them. We probably won't do another Dresden show unless like a video game comes out or a new board game or something because we've done two in two years now. But Man, if you like detectives and fantasy settings, like this is just such a fun mashup of the two genres. Yes, it is. And watch a TV series if you want. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually enjoyable. I love who they picked for director for the TV series. And Murphy, too. They're great actors. Yeah. It kind of starts in Stormfront. I'm sad it didn't. Yeah. It was yeah. good. I enjoyed it. Well, Stormfront was kind of in the middle of the series. We watched. Did we watch the whole series, or did we watch just a handful of episodes to get ready for Harry Wizards? No, I thought we watched the whole one. Yeah, I thought we watched the whole thing too. Yeah, but... it's like um, twelve episodes or thirteen. Yeah. It's fun if you've read the books. It's fun to say, "Oh yeah, I see this and that." Yeah, but it's only from like the first handful of books. Or yeah, I, I watched it a long time ago, but it was good. It was. Yeah, so far everything Dresden is. Good stuff. We'll see what we think about the board game just a little bit later in the show. First, Feeny and John are going to step away, and Joey and Casey are going to warp in with the magic of the internet to talk about Tell Me Why. Hello. Hey, what's going on? We're here to talk about Game Pass Forever. Thank you for joining us, guys. For January's Game Pass Forever game, our benevolent overlords on Patreon chose Tell Me Why from Don't Nod Entertainment. This episodic narrative adventure game takes place in small-town Alaska. In the opening moments, a little girl is confessing to killing someone. Then, over three acts, you play as identical twins Tyler and Ashley Ronan. Tyler has just been let out of a juvenile detention facility, and they are returning home for the first time to clear out their childhood home, which has stood empty since Tyler killed their mother ten years earlier. The twins share a telepathic link that allows them to share internal conversations, regardless of what's happening around them. And through the game, you explore their relationships and help them process the events that led up to that night and the grief they feel from the events of their mother dying. And Casey, let's start with you. Have you ever played anything like Tell Me Why before? What was this experience like for you? Uh, no, I've never played anything even close to this. Um, the experience itself was was amazing, and I going to share later like i just can't believe like the evolution of video games and like how things far far things have come for this story to be out there and just the the gameplay itself uh, it was really a great experience i would have to agree i've also never played anything like this and i you know i dabble with just about anything i can get my hands with in the video game medium so it was kind of fun and refreshing for me to play a narrative experience like this like i 
just love a strong narrative and I love wandering around and like messing with environments and just kind of seeing what the world has to offer. So like some of the gamey elements I struggled with in this game, but as far as like a narrative thing, I just absolutely loved it. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've played quite a few games like this, both when I was younger and then more recently. <laughs> Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more too, as well, especially how this sort of rates with Dotnod's first game, uh, Life is Strange. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Life is Strange is one of your favorite games. You ranked it the third best game you played on the last console generation, which is high praise considering you played like something ridiculous, like 300 games. Was it 250? It was yeah. I can't remember exactly, but it was a lot. Yeah. And it came in at number three for you. How did, tell yeah. me why compare to Life is Strange and some of Dotnod's other titles? Uh, yeah, so I, I actually haven't played any of the other Don't Not games. So this was the second one I played. Um, I have Life is Strange Season 2, and I also have uh, Life is Strange Before the Storm, which was made after but was supposed to be a prequel to Life is Strange. Uh, it's very similar. So a lot of what they are what they do with the adventure-style games, uh, like Tell Me Why and Life is Strange is, is it's all about kind of like these ordinary people that then have some sort of, kind of metaphysical power of some sort. So in Life is Strange, uh, Max, the main character, has the ability to rewind time to try to sort of puzzle the way out of things. And uh, as you were talking about here and Tell Me Why, it's this telepathic link that the, that the uh, siblings can use to be able to communicate with each other while they're having conversations with people to unlock other uh, dialogue portions or options. Uh, as well as then the ability to try to jointly remember what happened at certain key points in their lives in order to try to figure out solutions or at least how they are understanding how the events that transpired occurred to sort of figure out how they're going to move forward. I think that's really interesting. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a really interesting concept to do that. And it also has that little bit of a, it makes you reflect on like history and how like your memory of certain things isn't the 100% exactly how it happened. But then again, that doesn't necessarily matter as much as like what it meant to you and how that made you feel and how you remember it happening, because that is what resonated with you. So I think that's some interesting things that they, they delve into with this game uh, a little bit more so even than what life is strange did. Uh, I still think I still like life is strange better. I think it's the type of thing where you might like this type of game that you play uh, more the first one that you play because then you're always trying to measure it together. I think some of the storyline stuff in Life is Strange just resonated a lot more with me, which we can talk about maybe in a little bit if we want to. Well, you can't uh, identify and, with killing one of your parents? I can't identify with killing one of my parents. Or changing uh, your well, gender? Well, all of, all of Life is Strange is like <laughs> trying to save a friend, right? So a friend that dies right away in the beginning of the game, you're continually trying to find a way to save that. And, you know, um, when I was younger, having a friend that died right after high school and stuff like that, like that's the thing when I finished that game that like extremely resonated with me and just sort of trying to piece together like, so what would have happened differently if, you know, my friend hadn't died? And what would my life be like now if that hadn't happened? And what would have the... Because it's a lot of it's about the butterfly effect. It's like, what were the ripples that would happen? Whereas, like, in Tell Me Why, it's all about this link, this close link that you have with the sibling. Um, and I do also wonder if, like, twins would have maybe a little bit more of a connection to that uh, because that's sort of this whole twin link thing that a lot of people talk about having to some extent with their twin. It's just amped up here for the game. 
Yeah, I've known some twins. None of them have been able to speak telepathically. Well, so that you know of. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, maybe they didn't tip their hands. Let's talk a little bit about more uh, like of the experience. Like, It's hard to quantify this. Like a book you read, a movie you watch, games like you picture Mario or you picture The Witcher or you picture uh, flying through space and shooting stuff. This is just such a different experience. Is this what is considered a walking sim? It's a little bit different than a walking simulator. This This has a lot more of an analog to traditional adventure games. And so if you're thinking about... Uh, Escape to Monkey Island, Escape Monkey Island, the Monkey Island games way back in the day, or then like Grim Fandango, and then more recently like the Telltale games. A lot of the, this is very similar to the Telltale games. It has actually a lot more trappings in the traditional adventure games. A lot of it is about going into environments, figuring out puzzles, figuring out what items you need to use in order to solve solutions. For instance, there's a part where you go into the archives and the police station and you need to try to figure out what happened on the night your mother died. And so like you go into the computer and you search for a thing and it tells you a box and you have to find the box out of all these boxes on the shelves. And then that'll give you a clue. Then you go back to the computer and you, so like you're walking into these environments and you have like a small little sandbox and you have to like hit a thing or find a thing or talk to someone to kind of progress the story along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's an interesting format. It was, uh, again, it was something completely new to me. There were a number of memorable characters in this game, and trying not to go into major spoilers because this is still a relatively new title, what characters stood out to you guys? I really, I don't know if I like attachment is the, word, is the right word, but like Sam, I really thought was a, a, a very interesting character. Um, just his his struggle with everything and then, um, you know, yeah, the Sam is a, uh, yeah. he's a down on his luck, former nautical like navigator who fixes boats now and he's a drunkard and he's kind of watching over the house while nobody's occupying it. And he very clearly had a thing for the twins mother and his own relationship fell apart. And yeah, I agree. He was a very interesting character. He had a lot going on. They kind of positioned him for something. And I knew from the get go that that wasn't likely to be the case. It was too obvious. Yep. 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 Uh, I, I, I think both the, both the, the twins, so um, Allison or Allie, uh, who is the sister, and then Tyler, who is the transgender brother. Uh, I think it's, and I think we might talk about this more a little bit later too, but the fact that you're actually playing as a transgender person and going through those discussions and those thoughts and sort of like trying to piece together like what this means and, and what it's like to feel that way, I think is a really important thing to have in games and just storytelling in general because there isn't a lot of media out there that helps you to sort of try to understand and put yourself in those shoes and so i think just in general like those two characters and the things that they're kind of like struggling with internally as well as externally with other people i think is is really fascinating how they do that not to get into spoilers but i think that's like where allison also has some really interesting dynamics because of the demons that she's fighting with internally also. And, and who does she confide? Cause that's what a lot of the game is, is who do you have her confide in or not? Like, who is she going to connect to or not? For um, instance, is she gonna, sorry, for instance, she's going to connect. Is she going to connect with her brother who she's been largely estranged from while he was in juvenile detention? Or is she going to side with her adopted father who is the police chief who, convicted or not convicted but arrested Tyler so it's really it 
gives you a really thoughtful series of choices. And I'm glad you brought that up. Like, I've never played as a transgendered character in any game. I've never... I don't believe I've ever followed a transgender lead character in any form of media. So I, I, it made me think, well, how do I feel about this? Like, how do I relate to this character? What, how are they like me? How are they different? It was a very thought provoking choice and like not one that I would have ever thought of with a bunch of creative guesses. Yeah. I, I looked in, or not looked into, but like I actually watched a video, a uh, YouTube video, um, just kind of in prep for this and like, just such a huge like nod to don't nod for for this but like they talk to members of their staff they talk to xbox they talk to they actually got involved with glad to make sure that the character of tyler was portrayed in such a way that they um you know wanted to make sure that it was inclusive and that they were doing it right um it was like like joe kind of said there are some transgender characters in other other games uh, and then and i did i've never been i've never played any game that had any transgender characters but in the past a lot of the transgender characters were viewed as villains or viewed as a joke and kind of like it, the wrong aspect so obviously they didn't want to have one of their their main protagonists in, vi in a video game which they've never i don't know if they've ever had one that's actually playable as a protagonist before but the fact that they were able to portray Tyler the way that they did and do it in such an amazing way where I think that like if you were struggling with coming out to your parents or struggling with you know anything being a transgendered individual that this is a game where you could potentially even like help you in that transition process and Tyler was such an interesting character one of the cruxes that they build early in the game is that he believes that their mother tried to kill him because he was transgendered and that he killed her in self-defense and that is how he that is the mindset he has going into the game and a lot of the game is exploring how that could change how his thinking could change how his perceptions change and i really like tyler i thought he was such a super interesting character and he was he was really well done yeah i had a hard time like you know with the choices going on like in the beginning like i felt like I want to have angry Tyler, you know, like I want, you know, I, I've been locked up. I'm pissed off. I want to be angry. So my choices were kind of <laughs> towards that more like I'm angry. I'm not going to, you know, like not siding with the uncle, screw him. I'm not going to take the ring. This doesn't spoil anything, but like, I'm like, and then by the end of the game, it was kind of like, Oh, you know, like I was more sympathetic and like, you know, just, I find myself attaching to him a lot more than, than the, uh, than the sister. Yeah, I, I started out with a more empathetic approach just because, like, there are so many games where you can be aggressive and you can be over the top or you can be violent or you can do this or do that. So I wanted to take a more thoughtful, more reasoned approach than perhaps I do to things in my own, like, personal life. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, you know, as the game went on, I was happy with that choice and I stayed with the more empathetic decisions by and large. Joey, how did your decision making work out? Uh, earlier on in the game, I was kind of all over the place because I was still trying to get a feel for, like, because in these games, I always try to put myself in that person's shoes that I'm playing as, you know, and, and you do alternate between playing as Tyler and Allison throughout the game. And so it, it is interesting to sort of see, like, how I was portraying each character was evolving as the game went on. And... Uh, and just sort of the understanding of those feelings and the complexities. And is it like, is this where, you know, Tyler is starting to finally feel comfortable with the stepfather or the, or Allie's adopted father, I guess would be the best way to put it is, 
you know, is 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 Allie, you know, willing to forgive at this point? Is she, you know, and and the whole game plays around that. Like that's a lot of what I think is really cool about the Don't Nod games compared to like your more traditional adventure games. Is a lot more of it tends to focus upon like the emotional development of your character too and how you are working within that and developing that and the choices you make tend to wrap into into that a lot which i think is really cool and a lot of fun and it allows you to sort of like mold the story a little bit towards where you think the characters are moving yeah it's awesome to have that sort of agency in the story like you don't get that with a novel you can't tell a novel what he's gonna think or feel or do right it's really cool Let's talk a little bit about the overall narrative here without trying to give anything away. There's three acts. The end of Act 1 ends with a big reveal. Act 2 ends with a big controversy or a big uh, big conflict is the C word I was looking for. And then there's the like the ending in Act 3. Were you guys satisfied with the overall arc? Were there high points, low points for you? I was, yeah. Um, I think the ending of Chapter 1 was the biggest kind of like oh you know like where where is this gonna go like it just makes you want to jump right into the next one I it think was the, so good man like i'm guessing that's where you texted me and said this game is freaking awesome <laughs> yeah. yep and then yeah by the end of it you know like I, I was satisfied with with how it ended i i don't know like tom you had texted me at one point in time and said i think i know what the big secret is so i don't know if that was figuring out the ending like if you knew it before it was going to happen like i did not i had it was i was pretty surprised like i, mean, I could kind of see it was coming when there was like probably like 15 minutes left of gameplay but like <laughs> up until that point I, I really didn't have a clue where where you know what was going to happen so I, I was surprised and i was satisfied with the way that my ending was i guess i don't know if you guys had the same ending as me because I, I did look and there are two two endings in this video game so i don't know Oh, that's fascinating. We might need to talk about what those two endings are because I'd say there are two big things at the end. I pegged one of them very early on. There was another thing specifically dealing with the mother that I did not see coming and that I felt was just super duper satisfying. It's like, oh, all right. Now all these pieces like make sense. Now I get it because there was a thing about the mother that just it seemed off the whole game to me and I didn't understand it until that reveal and that I never guessed. Yep. Well, and, it's, and I think it's the, that's the interesting thing about what they did with the characters in this game, including the mother, who you only see from, you know, flashbacks and stuff like that because she's been dead for 10 years. But all of the characters, like, none of them is cut and dried, this is this person. There's, like, these levels and layers to them. So even as we were talking about Sam earlier, you get to have a moment where you're visiting Sam at his workshop and there's all these books and he did not seem like the type of person that would read a bunch of books and it's just like that's really cool and you're in the cop's house as allison at one point and you're just sort of exploring and he has a saxophone and he didn't seem like the type of guy that would play a saxophone and it's just like the varying different levels of these characters and then how not only like learning that about them, but then how that makes the character you're playing as feel about them, I think is just a really cool thing because you're you're sort of piecing this together as they are too. And like for instance, you know, seeing that the father or the the stepfather or adopted father, um, you know, used to play music and go to festivals and stuff like that. Like you're you're seeing that as I didn't see that side of the character, but then you're also hearing Allison say, "I bet." 
he couldn't do this anymore once he had to start taking care of me. And like seeing that extra level of that guilt that she feels because of this, you know, I think is just a really, just really fascinating. And they do that in lots of different ways throughout the game. And in sort of like little reveals about what characters did at certain points that even the main characters didn't realize until that moment. I think it's really cool. And it, it makes it really a, a dynamic way to experience the story as you're going through it. Agreed. And I just want to call out one scene in particular, beginning of act three, when Allison is losing her stuff, like I thought that was just yeah. so well done. It was so good. Like, Oh, I, that, that actually is not funny, but like, <laughs> I'm thinking like this whole time, so like through one and two, it's like Tyler is struggling, Tyler is struggling, Tyler is struggling. Beginning of Act Three, Allison is just like you said, just losing her, shit, you know, and like she's struggling with so many internal demons, and Tyler is ice fishing on a lake <laughs> with Allison's best friend. Yeah. I'm like, what in the hell just happened here? Like there was such a turnaround where it was like, all of a sudden he's just kind of like, yeah, you know, like he was, you know, you know the big you know the conflict and stuff like it, just, it seemed like obviously it affected her a hell of a lot more than it affected tyler because he's yeah. just like all right i'm gonna go hang out here i'm just gonna chill with michael we're gonna go ice fishing and then you know see what happens <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. like, i thought that was really interesting just like the uh, just the 180 of those characters well and, and it's also that 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 interesting look at the difference between kind of like external conflict so Tyler's conflict's very external because, you know, he's coming back here as a boy. One of the first people you, you talk to is talking about, oh, I thought the Ronan twins were sisters. I didn't know they had a brother. Uh, and then, you know, Tyler's like, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the brother, you know. And, and so, and trying to deal with this very conservative, shut down area of Alaska uh, dealing with, mm -hmm. you know, there's this transgendered kid and, and each character kind of has their little development of learning to interact with them. And some of them are like really kind of heartwarming actually. Which like when funny. Sam read the Google to learn the words that he couldn't say. <laughs> yes. yes, I thought that was hilarious, but it was also like touching because he like cared about it to try to figure it out and apologized, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and so I, I think that stuff is really, is really cool that they were able to do, but then Allison is really dealing with these internal demons. And like, sometimes a lot of the times people are able to put up a good front, but then inside they're a mess. And so it's like those first two chapters, you're seeing that. And then it's like that third chapter, you finally get a look inside of where Allison's at. And it's, yeah, it's not a good place. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We're almost out of time here, but a couple of things I wanted to get you guys rapid thought or rapid fire thoughts on. How did we feel about the puzzles in the game? I can leave this um, one off. Overall, I was largely blah on them until the puzzles at the very end where like you're getting mom's backstory. I thought those were those were optional and I thought they were really interesting and I wanted to like piece that full story together, so I went through them all. The rest of the puzzles, like I felt like this game struggled the most when it tried to be a game. Like I hated the fishing. I hated the police archives. Like I, we're trying to say, Oh yeah, we're a game. Let's do some game stuff. That was, those were the low points for me where I was ripping from story beat to story beat. Those were the high points for me. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't mind them. I think it like, like you said, it's a game trying to be a game. I think yeah, it, 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 that makes a lot of sense to, to put it that way, where if you didn't have that aspect, it would basically just be 
playing through a movie in a sense, you know, where I really did like the, the very ending, the, the, you know, we only had to do the three puzzles. I liked that they were like, are you sure you want to leave kind of thing? Like, you know, they gave you the option to go to, to leave and not complete the rest of the three or go back and do it. Um, I also did the, did the remaining and, and I think it was, it was worth it and they weren't overly challenging, but it was, it kind of made you go back and read the, the book that you find in the beginning. And like, you, you just learn a lot more history about the character and the overall arc of the story, which is, which was a nice touch. That's a beautiful thing that they did in this game. Early on, you find the book of goblins. It's the book of goblins, right? Yep. But yep. it's all these stories that the kid's mother had written about them. The kids were the crafty goblins when they were little. That's what their mom called them. And she made up all these fairy tale stories involving them and the other characters in their lives. Like Sam Kansky was a bear. And like every person in their lives was an anthropomorphic animal in the book. And they, then those stories were used to solve puzzles throughout the game. Like you'd have to match an image to a story and then there'd be a hidden clue in that story for solving the puzzle. And I thought that was really interesting how they kept it all contained within the Book of Goblins. And I thought that kept the puzzles more interesting, but ultimately still not my favorite part of the game. So looking at it in comparison to like other adventure types games, I think it does a better job than Telltale. Telltale, Telltale games from an adventure standpoint are a lot more just kind of like the fishing was. So it's your like quick button presses to do different things. Uh, every now and again, you'll have to like figure out your way out of a situation by having a certain item for a certain thing, but otherwise nothing that you had to kind of piece together. So like in the police station, like we were talking about, you find a file that allows you to search for different things and find different files, which is, it's interesting. It's not groundbreaking game design, uh, but I think it's better than what old school adventure games used to be where it's like, oh, you threw those scissors away five chapters ago. Well, you're screwed now. You can't do this, <laughs> you know? And so... So I think it's I think it's a really good evolution of it. Then again, I'm the type of person that's much more so going to latch on to the narrative as opposed to the actual storyline. But I will also agree, I think the puzzle stuff at the end is phenomenal. I really enjoyed that, uh, that, that aspect of it a lot. And I think that was a really good tie-in of the mechanics of everything and then the story at the end to finally give you that, that like, better idea of what kind of was happening. Yeah. And in this game's defense, I mean, if you really didn't like to do the puzzles, they gave you an out every single time. Like you could kick in the door, you could smash open the box of the crowbar. You could, I mean, there's other things that you can do <laughs> if you don't want to do the puzzles. I don't know if it would have changed the overall arc of the story, but I'm, I like, know there are achievements it, I wouldn't have yeah. gotten. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So let's talk about, the last thing I want to touch on is the overall emotional punch of this game. I was surprised at the emotions that it evoked, thinking about the strong emotions I had from moving out of like my parents' house and like moving on with life. Like specifically for me, there was a moment when Tyler's walking around the house for the last time that I just thought was really powerful and kind of summed up the whole experience. It's like, oh yeah, this, this whole thing is about moving on, like grieving or letting go of the past and moving on. That was the key point that I took away from this game. Yeah, I think I think that's a lot of what it was. And then and then also like like with moving on also it's trying to put all of that stuff in the past to rest, right? And so a lot of that then I think for all of us is kind of wrapped up in like our parents' homes and and things like that. And so then having this traumatic event that ties into all of that I think was also that extra complicating factor for them. I, I mean, I think emotionally I think they did a fantastic job. Uh, of connecting you to the characters 
and getting invested in both of them as well as then the NPCs also. I think I felt like I was really invested in a couple of them uh, more than others, obviously. But I think it's just really interesting how they give you those breadcrumbs and allow you to sort of run with it. I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm not sure anybody could actually like, I mean, yes, there are transgendered people out there that are, are dealing with that situation or there are people dealing with some of the depression issues of Allison and all that sort of stuff. But like, I don't know if anybody could like, really wrap their minds and, and get like that close to everything that's going on. Like, you know, it, I mean, nobody has all of that going on at the same time. Plus had the traumatic youth where they, you know, stab their mother and have to deal with all of that. But yeah, <laughs> the over, the, just the overall story, the character development, the, uh, you know, there's, there's little parts that, that everybody I think can relate to. And uh, it, to me, it was a, it was a tremendous game, and I'm really glad that we we picked this. I think the one other connecting thing is like all of us growing up in like more rural Minnesota. I think connecting to the environment of rural Alaska and kind of that lifestyle, there's a lot of similarities there too. That I think is a connection for us that maybe someone who like has lived their entire life inside of a city maybe wouldn't have as much of an affinity for as like maybe we have, or at least connections to it. So I think that's another interesting aspect of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Any other closing thoughts or takeaways you guys have from uh, Tell Me Why by Don't Nod Entertainment? Just to kind of talk like, right when we started, like, I mean, this is to me just an amazing, like, evolution of, of video games. Like, you know, how they, Atari and early video games of just triangles and squares on the screen to now, like, being able to play through uh, an epic adventure of, you know, two telepathic siblings, one dealing with transgendered issues and, like, moving on and just, like, you know how don't nod like got so involved with making sure that they did everything right i mean it's it's just a it's awesome amazing time to be a video gamer and like there's so many different things that you know and to play out there and you know if you don't like shooters you don't like whatever there's just there's always something else out there that could interest you and and I, i'm really glad like i said that we we ended up getting a chance to play this game and i think also it's one of those things where I mean, so many people just don't have time to do things, uh, you know, play through large games and this whole game you can get through in 10 to 12 hours, yep. you know, and, and so I think and, and get like a full experience out of it. So I think from that also, like, I, I would highly recommend it to anybody, especially if you have Game Pass, because it's free with Game Pass. So it, it, it's definitely worth with worth trying and worth looking at. Definitely. It's also a strong case for games being art. No, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah thousand percent moving on to next month next month for this segment we are going to be playing monster train monster train is a about as different from tell me why as you could possibly get (laughs) it's a strategic roguelike deck building game with a twist it's set on a train to hell you use tactical decision making to defend multiple vertical battlegrounds with real-time competitive multiplayer and endless replayability monster train is always on time how familiar are you guys with this game? Uh, heard of it. Heard that it's uh, really fun. Like, I haven't heard really anything negative about it. Um, I'm really excited to play it. I never got to play Slay the Spire, and I know it is kind of a, I don't know, like you put on Twitter today, an evolution kind of of that game. So I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. 
Yeah, I had a friend that was playing it a lot on Steam for a while, so I saw that, and I was like, oh, well, it must be good, or it must be addicting at least. And then uh, I, when I downloaded it on my Xbox Series S, I was looking at the description, and yeah, it, it looks like it's going to scratch that Slay the Spire itch, which which should be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely. It has such a Slay the Spire feel to it, but it's it takes the mechanics a little bit further. I played two games today, and I really enjoyed my first take on it. There's lots of things to level up. There's different uh, factions to unlock. There's different cards within each faction to unlock. So I'm really super excited to see like how deep each one of us gets into it, how, uh, how epic our trains become, and I think it'll be a really interesting discussion next month. It's going to awesome. run a train all over you, Tom. Swell. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoy this content please back outside is overrated on patreon this segment game pass forever and the upcoming oio new game plus are both tied to specific tiers on patreon you can back us for as little as two dollars a month but at ten dollars a month you get an extra podcast from tom and joey each month check it out at patreon.com oio patreon is spelled p-a-t r-e-o-n dot com slash o-i-o casey you listen to our tom and joey unfiltered at ten dollars a month is it worth it I, uh absolutely yeah i i listened to the last one on the way up to go ice fishing and it was a perfect hour filler for me so i highly recommend it awesome well casey joey thanks for joining us we're gonna jump back to phoenix and john to talk more about dresden catch you guys later right. bye Hey, fellas. You know, I'm dealing with some major pain in my wrist from rolling all these natural 20s, hanging out with my D&D group. Any recommendations on what you can help me out with? Check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, and D&D injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. For our top five today, I'm going to turn it over to John, and he's going to tell us the top five characters in the Dresden universe. It's time now for... The Final Countdown! Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Take it away, John. All right. So I'm going to do this as, as spoiler-free as I possibly can. And we, we pretty much mentioned all these people except for my number five, right? We did not mention him. And he is one of my favorite characters because he barely says anything. This is Mac from McAnally's Tavern. And McAnally's Tavern is just like, you know, it's this little place that, you know, Dresden goes. And, like, again, like, you know, I want a Coke. Well, now I want beer and a steak because he makes these amazing steak sandwiches. It, it's also like a wizard hangout, through, right? Yeah, it's the wizard hangout. It's where all the wizards go, and, like, you drop down, and there's 13 stools and, like, 13 ceiling fans, and everything is, you know, it's a safe haven where nothing's supposed to happen. And Mac is just this guy behind, this gruff guy behind the bar, just like, (laughs) you know, he doesn't say much of anything. Um, But he's got just some really cool moments throughout the books where he just, like, gives that, you know, grandfatherly type advice to Harry or that you know that world advice or just shows up when he's needed even though he's this neutral party to kind of like you know kick some butt so Mac is my top five um we talked about Bob number four Bob awesome he is funny he is humorous he's one of the best ways to get exposition I've seen used in a book ever 
He is a skull, and he is awesome. Um, number three, we did not talk about Butters. Phoenix did mention him, and I feel like Butters is fantastic. He is, he is like you know, if you're a, a dorky nerdy guy like me, and you're reading these books, he is that character. You're like, oh, I could that that's me. There I am, and like he like plays polka, and like just all the little idiosyncrasies he he brings in. And he stands up to Dresden in several cases. So he's just another one of these, like, normal people. I think he's a, uh, a coroner, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's just one of these normal people that end up in the whirlwind that is Dresden's life. And he gets sucked into this world and helps in so many major ways. And as soon as his eyes are open to magic, he can start to, you know, really help. And he's just great. I love Butters. He's fantastic. Number two. Johnny Marcone. Gentleman Johnny Marcone. Gentleman, gentleman John Marcone. And he just gets better and better. Um, great villain. Great, you know, use of a villain. Great way to humanize a villain throughout the thing. Love John Marcone and the fight with Dresden. Um, so I have four honorable mentions, right? Uh, two are because I love animals, and you have Dresden's cat, Mister. I love Mister. Mister's so much fun. I'm glad he made an appearance in this book. (laughs) Mister's so fantastic, and he just reminds me of my cat every time I read it. So I'm like, Mister's awesome. And then eventually in the books, Dresden also gets like a mastiff like thing. This dog is just massive. And Butcher does a great job just writing animals for whatever reason, and I just love what he's done with his animals. Um, Number three honorable mention is Sue. We mentioned the T-Rex. It's one of the coolest things ever. Uh, I'm not going to say any more. And then the other thing is the Blue Beetle, which is Dresden's car. And Butcher does such a cool job of, like, actually making a car a character in this. And not, like, Optimus Prime, who's a Transformer character. It's just one oh, of these that things. That would be like, sweet. <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, the Blue Beetle is just, like, such an integral part of who Dresden is and part of these stories that in those first, like, several books were – it's there and, and he's in it all the time. It's just a really, really cool piece of Dresden. And then, so the actual number one top character is Dresden himself. Um, I mean, the books are about Dresden. Uh, the Tom touched on these conversations he has with himself. He is your, you know, your conduit through that kind of, you know, narrative he's giving. And it's just a really fun character to read and to watch grow and change and be funny and powerful and bad and vulnerable. And he's awesome. He's Dresden. He's a cool wizard. Feeney, you've read more books than I have. What are, what are your thoughts on John's top five? Did he blow it on any of them? No, I would have to agree on a lot of them. Um, I, you know, there's some of the Fae characters I enjoy a lot, but I haven't read a lot of the um, later books. So I've only, you know, so I'm not sure as far as the Winter Queen and how she, I know she becomes an integral part of Dresden and stuff, but, you know, I just, I, yeah, all the characters are great that you chose. I have to agree with a lot of them, so. I think Mac's an interesting choice because it doesn't sound like he does much. Like, he's clutching Stormfront, he lets Harry borrow his car, and he's, uh, he's only in full moon for moments <laughs> I no longer know what the book is called. Um, it's personal choice. I just, I love McAnally's Tavern, and I just love that idea. Like, here's this guy that's just, like, completely neutral, 
they're trying to be completely neutral in the craziness of everything. And all he is, he's a bartender who makes great steak sandwiches. Uh, but he also like, you know, when the chips are down and he's going to, we got to save the world. You know, he's got a shotgun behind the bar. Yeah. <laughs> One shotgun to save the world. It's probably right. a Yeti coming to edit. Well, I mean, it. this is a good list for you in ways because, um, a lot of characters you already know, you know, there's, um, characters like Thomas and Molly that you haven't met yet. And I mean, this is an excellent list without spoiling too much either for you. I, I tried to keep it front half, right? Um, yep. this is, and this is my list, you know, Murphy would be close right on there. You know, uh, I really like Kincaid. He's really cool. Oh yeah. He's a great character. Right, so there's there's all kinds of really really cool characters, and there's that one kid. Um, oh, I forgot. Um, it's with um, the yeah, yeah, you know, he the has cool. he has a lot of characters. Like we we're talking about, his universe just gets so big, but he brings a lot of characters back, so you just don't forget or try to remember who these characters are. So Ebenezer is cool. I thought yeah. I'd throw him on the list, yeah. right? Uh, the next, the third book is cool because you get Ebenezer, you get a lot of, of Dresden's background story with Elaine and Ebenezer and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, Michael's like, they're all cool, man. Like, it's hard to make these top five lists when you're like, oh, <laughs> it is uh, hard. Well, good luck. Before we conclude with the Dresden series, I just want to ask John a question. How do you think he's going to try to end this series? Do you think he has to kill Harry, or do you think? Because I know Harry right now has the mantle of the White Knight, and I just don't know, um, the Winter Knight, mm -hmm. I just don't know how he's going to get that off. But, you know, it's like, in your, what's your thoughts? Do you think he's going to have to kill Harry, or is, you know... He's going to ascend the tower, and then he's going to have to uh, pick up the horn and then do the whole thing again. Well, <laughs> to be... Somewhat vague because I don't want to spoil anything. No, I with know. The added, with the added responsibilities that Harry has, if you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think it's going to be hard for Butcher to kill him. That's what I thought but, too, but I just didn't know. I could see it happening. I think if, if anything, it's going to be a sacrifice moment. If anything, he's shown me, you know, reading all the other books, it all comes down to Harry having to sacrifice. And I think it is going to be one of those moments, right, where, you know, it's going to be an Iron Man moment, right? I, I could see him going that route. And then at I the last moment, is he going to say, you know what? This armor is mine. I'm just going to keep it. Screw the world. <laughs> that was a Frodo Baggins reference. It's going to be an Iron Man moment. I would, I would guess going that way. And we get a really, really awesome epilogue. Yeah, I just, it's hard to see the series ending with a flowery, happy ending for Harry. I would love for there to be one, but it just, with all his responsibility he has on his shoulders and all the interconnection relationships he has now, and, you know, and also he's the presence that keeps Chicago safe, too, I know, but it just, you know, it's going to be interesting how he kind of concludes this whole series. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I haven't read the two new books that he, he's put out, so I'm looking forward to diving into those. I think I'm still going to try and reread all the other ones just for fun. Mm -hmm. well, good on Jim Butcher if he can actually come up with an ending after yes. 20 books. 
those were our thoughts on both Full Moon and the top five characters in the Dresden universe. What did we miss? Tweet your thoughts at TomSidlogicOIO or email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. For our last major segment of the show, we're going to talk about the Dresden Files Cooperative Card Game. This game came out in 2017, published by Evil Hat Games, and designed by Eric B. Vogel, who has a number of design credits to his name, but I haven't really heard of many of these. They include Don't Turn Your Back, Zeppelin Attack, Cambria, Romans Go Home, and Amorica. John, are you familiar with any of these? The only one that sounds normal is Cambria, or familiar, but I think it's just because there's lots of things called Cambria. Um, so yeah, I haven't heard of any of these. Yeah, I hadn't either. It looked like he did some uh, role-playing games, and it looks like Evil Hat Games publishes a lot of tabletop role-playing games, so a, kind of an interesting choice to develop a game based on such a popular license. On Board Game Geek, the uh, cumulative rating for the game is 7.1 out of 10, which isn't great, but it also isn't awful. To lay out the game, you play a scenario based on one of the books. So each book will have... Uh, a series of 12 cards to it and there's a board that holds those 12 cards. It's going to be some combination of foes to fight, cases to solve, obstacles to overcome, and advantages to help you on your way. Each player controls a character from the first four books in the base game. Your options are Harry, Murphy, Susan, Michael, or the combination of Billy and Georgia. Each character has a talent that they can use um, every time they discard a card, so uh, basically, you're burning through cards and you get this talent, unique talent that'll help you in some way. And each character also has a stunt, which is a one-time use special ability. The core action of this game revolves around a fate pool. There's a pool of 13 fate, and every card has a fate cost. So if you want to play this attack card for Murphy, it could have a fate cost anywhere from 1 to 5. Then you take fate from the available pool and you put it in the spent pool. When you need to replenish your fate, you need to discard a card from your hand, and that same attack card that costs three fate, you can discard to recover three fate. And that's the crux of the action in this game. Like, you're managing your fate and trying to get the most out of your hand of cards. Once you're out of cards, or sometimes due to bad luck, you have a final showdown, and then you get one last chance to roll the dice to uh, close cases and defeat foes to win the game. And basically, to win, you have to solve more cases than there are foes on the board. So I think Stormfront has four cases and four foes. So you need to close one, two, three, or four cases and then clear off that many enemies off the board as well. So that, well, those are the winning parameters. And tie goes to evil. It's tied. Tie goes <laughs> to evil. You have to win. You have to win you have outright. To win. So let's, uh, let's start by talking about the gameplay for this game. When I heard cooperative card game, I immediately thought deck builder. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't really anticipating this. This feels like more of a puzzle game. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It really is like uh, you know, it's a puzzle game with enough randomization thrown in that it can really mess you up. <laughs> um, but every every time you lay out those top twelve, right? It's, I think it's twelve cards. It's like okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to move cards? How do I need to clear cards in this way? Which cards interact with the other ones? So every time it is a puzzle, unfortunately, sometimes the puzzle you can't win. Right? The random, the RNG can get you to where like, oh hey, these are dealt like yeah, there is legit no way I can win this with the cards I was dealt and the the, the playing field I have. So that's a bummer. 
Yeah, the randomness can be really challenging. One of the things I like, each character has a deck of cards, and you only draw some of them, depending on how many players are in the game. So you don't draw all of them, so your toolkit is going to be a little bit different with each playthrough. Like, uh, I've played a lot of games with Harry, so I know that he has one attack card that does two damage to all the enemies in one of the rows, and he has an investigation card that does two clues, adds two clues to any open case in one of the rows. And those are super useful cards, but you're not going to have them every time you play as Harry. Yeah, and they're really super useful if all the monsters are on the top row, right? Because when you lay out your 12 cards, you know, there's a top and there's a bottom row. So if you have your clues and your monsters intermixed, well, Harry's card just got a lot less useful. Because now you're only hitting one guy instead of maybe four. That sort of thing. Yeah, randomness helps for keeping games fresh, but it's not necessarily good game design. And it's unfortunate that it can put you in such challenging positions here. When you play a I will say, though, you know, I see why they did it, right? Because the one thing the game really, really does, if you've read a Dresden book, is you are all, Dresden's always about to lose. It's, it's always about, like, he's just about to, like, not win or die or something bad is about to happen. Every time, like, you don't know how Dresden's going to get out of this, this mess he's in, right? It's never like he's – there's very few moments where Dresden walks in like a powerhouse, Right. So it does a really good job of making you feel like Dresden, like you're in those Dresden novels from that standpoint, because every one of the decisions you make is really important. It just does it in a way where, well, if I didn't get these dice rolls right, I lose. And the dice in the game, right, it's not like one through six, it's plus, minus, or blank. So the dice are stacked against you in a lot of cases where if I need it to be a plus, Right. Well, it's it's a I got a one third one out of three chance of getting that plus. So it makes it harder, especially when you hit that showdown moment. It can be even worse in Stormfront. In the Stormfront scenario, one of the obstacles will turn a blank die into a minus, which makes all of your already challenging rolls that much harder. Yeah, and if you had and the way to clear that is like clearing an opportunity, and if that opportunity card or obstacle card, the obstacle is at the end of the thing, well then you're having to use other people's abilities to like be able to extend the range and if you don't have a long range or like don't have michael with his ability like to add plus two range you're kind of like oh well i guess i picked wrong the world's <laughs> over. yeah when you play a two-player game each of the players will control two characters and you shuffle their decks together so that was kind of interesting when phoenix and i played this together i think i was i uh harry and murphy yes you were yeah yeah, so that's kind of an interesting way they balance it, so you get more special abilities mixed in then. Um, Vini, we didn't get to play this game as much as we had hoped leading up to the show, but what were your first thoughts in our first playthrough? From my standpoint, you guys have played a lot more board games, you have more games to compare it to and stuff, but I I mean, I understand the ran randomness being kind of a challenge to do, but... I think in ways it makes you think. It makes you really have to be able to have the people that you play with have to be able to communicate well. You don't want someone that is not going to be a game player. I know there's some friends that aren't as well as game playing and cooperative games as they should be. Yeah, this is one where you have to be pretty cerebral. Like you yeah. can't, uh, like you can't be whimsical, or you're going to bring the whole team yeah. down with you. Yeah, and you know, and. You know, it was a little bit, it took me a while to try to figure out um, the pieces and figure out how we're playing this, but 
It was an interesting and it was enjoyable to see the book kind of laid out on the board game. And I like how the randomness does make it newish if you try to play it over and over again, you know. I mean, at some point, if you play it a lot, it could get a little old, but I, I mean, if you keep losing, you're going to keep wanting to play to try to win, too, so. Yeah, I've played a lot of games. I would say this is the only game like this that I'm aware of. I'm not exactly sure what to even, like, classify it or what genre it would fall in. Uh, it, to me, it's kind of solitaire, right? It is a little, it's like a solitaire puzzle game, right? You know, I played it mainly just myself. I know we played one together, Tom, but... Even even playing with you, like there's a mode where you can play like I don't share my hand with anyone. I don't know how anybody can win. <laughs> everybody playing their own hand and not sharing, like that would be completely random. But like that, it is a little bit of like okay, here's the what we have, and then it's just like making sure we all play our cards in the right order, right? So I do like actually that aspect of it. Like it was fun to say, hey, I'm gonna do this. Do you can can you take this one out? I'm like oh, what about this one? Like so that aspect of it. Really like um, that is a fun element yeah. with four players i can't imagine how frustrating it must be to try to line up those combos though because with two players like you do your thing and i do my thing like if i can't do my thing until feeny does her thing and then john does his thing and then brian does his thing like that seems like there would be a lot of luck that the cards would line up in an efficient manner and i would be very interested to try this with a full player count i think it would be a, it would be a fun game to actually like play in person all around the table it'd be kind of fun and like i do love obviously i love dresden so i love the the theme but i do love how the game really matches the the vibe and the feeling of the dresden books that, that's enough for me where i'd like if i saw it it was like 10 bucks or something 15 bucks at you know a store i'd probably pick it up just because the art's cool and hey maybe i'll play some solitaire with it you know mm-hmm yeah, I struggle to think of how much I'm going to play this game in the future because we have shelves and shelves of games and like, I I don't dislike this game. It's fun. It's got moments, but boy, comparing it to like Scythe, comparing it to Carcassarone, comparing it to Ascension. like Well, I, comparing it to those, I would say this one would be an easy one to pull off the shelf to play for a quick evening game where Scythe, you know, we have to expect Yeah, that's know, true. A few hours where, you know, our time together right now with little ones, we don't really have a lot of time. So we kinda are like floundering, well, should we play a game? Well what if it goes on forever? You know. And this one, you know, I didn't feel like it always will always go on forever. It seems like it's gonna be a short game. And I think that'll be useful if we wanted to pull something off the shelf that was quick. So yeah, that's true. So uh, you guys are playing it live with the actual cards because Tom and I were playing the Steam version. Um, does it play any different when you're playing it physical? Um, is it a little more fiddly than than you know? Yeah, it's a little more fiddly. The, of it the Steam version. Help. Sorry, the Steam version is really good. The Steam version is a great port, and it automatically puts the chips on for you, and it, you never forget uh, talent or anything. So the Steam version is a great adaptation of the game. I don't know. I mean, playing it in person, like, it's fun to assign the hits to things, but like, I feel like there was stuff we were forgetting, and I know, like, I cheated by not... 
I think there is uh, an obstacle where I was supposed to spend more fate for attacks and I just forgot about it. Well, I mean, that's with any game when you're first starting because you're trying to remember all the rules and all the pieces. But if we play it more and more, it's just going to become second nature to us, you know. So sure. it'll become like what Steam does for you because with you and math, you'll just be like, oh, we need to, you know, <laughs> you'll just do it automatically. So. I wanted to talk a little bit about the art in the game. Phoenix and I have differing kind of opinions. You like the art. Tell us uh, tell us why you like it, love. I liked it because when I looked at it, I was like, oh, you know, I, the, the style of the books are there. The covers, I mean, of the books. And, and, you know, the characters themselves, I feel like they did a wonderful representation of what Jim Butcher described of the characters. And, um... So, and as an artist, I really do enjoy, I did like how it was illustrated. I like how it was, um, the colors and everything was well put together. You know, I didn't see anything jarring or missing lines or things misdrawn or anything. I thought it was well put together in that sense. Yeah, I think the direction was good. Where I struggled was that all of the images for the different things were the same. So like all of Murphy's attack cards had the same image on them. All of her investigations had the same image on them. So like think of Murphy's attack, she has one that's a surprise Aikido move and another that's a point blank shot, which have different like stats on them, but the exact same artwork. Like I would have appreciated just having different images for those. I could see that. Yeah. I, I didn't notice the similar images until uh I saw you you pointed it out and so we were looking at it earlier and like as soon as I saw it right. I was like, "Oh, that would be so much easier." Yes, they are the same because that is part of that. Like, and a lot of the cards, there's a little like, you know, extra thing it can do. Like, if you close a case with this, you get extra cards or extra clues. But you know, or this card costs more. Or you have to roll dice on these. But the picture is exactly the same. So it would just be one of those things where it's like, "Oh, this is really easy to determine between these two by the cool picture on there." Yeah, and like they. They color coded the cards, and that's really helpful. So all the investigations for all the characters are green. I just I would have liked a little differentiation. So like, you know, my brain would tell me before I had to read the card that oh here's the attack I like. Oh here's the investigation I like. Oh here's the one that touches everyone. Here's the one that only touches one person but touches in range three. No, I see that. I mean, you know, you guys have played more games, more deck building games than I have, and so you guys would have more of that nuance. I guess from the standpoint that I was coming from is more of the stylistic drawing of the cards, you know, because I played some, you know, card games and stuff. And, you know, sometimes artwork isn't the greatest. I know like the Firefly. Um, legend- the adventure game? Or legendary. legendary. A lot of people complain that the artwork is just horrible on it. We haven't played it yet but that's one of the biggest complaints of it so. yeah and i agree that what's there is good i just i wish there was a little bit more variety i guess is my point so what are our takeaways from this game like is this something we are going to be playing regularly we already talked about it a little bit um my first takeaway it's hard like i've played maybe a dozen games or so now and i've won once i would second it's hard and like so i'm playing the steam version i play on easy i should probably start turning on the easy mode to get, give me an extra card as well um i end up tying every time mm-hmm. so i get to the point where i'm in uh the the showdown which that we didn't really talk about that so when you're all done and you're you're out of cards um, or you don't have any more fate and you can't you know so you're, you're done you're out of cards you say hey I can, i'm going to go to showdown and when you go to showdown then like you can spend whatever fate you have left to 
roll on any cases you've partially solved or bad guys you've partially killed. And a lot of times, well, I didn't do a good, you don't, you, you, you normally get there. You go to that showdown and then it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to click and hopefully get some random pluses to help me win. And I've yet to get the random pluses I need to help me win. So the big hairy comeback moment, they always fizzle out for me <laughs> in this game. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the showdown, I conceptually, I like it. I just don't think it's that interesting in practice. Like, it's nice that you have a final chance to win and that all the chips are on the table and you can take your best shot, but I don't know, I just... It's like, oh, well, I guess my best percentage chance of winning is here, so put it all, push all my faith there. Oh, minus is nuts. I would have rather liked to see it easier to win just in the normal game, but then have the showdown be this, like, you know, yeah, you played horrible, but you still might be able to win if you do these things. So you get more of that, like, one, it becomes this bigger thing where it's like, okay, if you're going to kill a bunch of Yetis with a shotgun, Tom, and you got all those dice and you're ready to go, right? It's those moments. So you get a story out of the game where you're like, oh, my gosh, no, we were so close to being dead or this and that, but we came back in the showdown and rolled this, boom. But if every game is pivoting on that roll, you're not going to go pick it up because you feel like, boy, it really is just that last those last few dice rolls that mean if I win or I lose. That's probably why I won't pick it up much more. I do like that it's like 10, 15 minutes. So if I just want to sit down and play, I can. If it was mobile or on like my, an iPad or something, I'd probably play it more just lying in bed trying to win some. But I probably won't play much on my computer anymore. Yeah, that's too bad. Feeny, what were your final thoughts on the game? Yeah, I was just thinking that um, it... You know, you guys seem to like the Steam version, and it, with John saying the mobile version would be kind of interesting. I'm, it's too bad they haven't done that because maybe people would enjoy, and maybe they would expand a little bit more on the game if it got more popular that way. But um, overall, it it's a hard game to play. The fate system really makes you stop and think about your choices and how to work with your fellow um, playmates and. You know, what are your strengths and weaknesses? What is going to help you? You know, is it trying to go after them or is it um, solving the cases, you know? And just having to work together more, you know, being more commutative. And it would be interesting to see your core group of friends trying to play this game and talking to each other because nope. I don't think you guys would even get past. <laughs> oh my goodness. Imagine me and Patrick and Casey and Rudquist playing this like No, that doesn't sound fun. No, I no, we'll did, stick to Memoir forty four. We'll uh make fun of Casey for taking too long and uh Yeah, I I figured this would not be a game for that group, but it just it had me thinking about oh, I wonder. Just sitting on the couch listening to you guys argue. <laughs> On who's going to sell their card for this and who's going to, you know, and who's going to do the damage. And so Patrick would hate this game with a fiery passion. Would he? Yeah. <laughs> Has done it is so. on mobile, by the way. I just looked it up. It is. Oh, so it is. Okay. I did a bunch of, guys, this is out there. Why don't you look? It is. It's like seven bucks. It's on. No. Nope. Oh. Hard pass. Yeah. I would pay. I already bought it once. I'd pay $1 for it on mobile, maybe. Well, it'd be interesting if we get the expansions to see if the different books change a little bit and how they do it or if it's still the same. 
And the characters, too. There's a lot more characters that they add in the expansions. They have Thomas and Molly. Can't remember who else they add, but they, you know, it might... They might change it up a little bit, you know, in the later stories in the game. It's a thought, so... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not really my cup of tea. It's in... It's an interesting game. It's not a bad game. I don't actively dislike it, but, uh, you know, if you're into Dresden and you're into a more cerebral, maybe less action-packed game, it's certainly worth checking out. Yeah, definitely if you're a Dresden fan, pick it up. Give it a shot. Well, John, Phoenix, it's been awesome having you both here. Anything you guys want to get off your chest about Dresden before we jump to the interview with David Ewalt and sign off for this episode? No, I think I'm good. Read the rest of the books, Tom. Catch up. <laughs> I'm on it. Well, I do say, um, well, we could do another episode um, because there is the role-playing game, too. Yes. <laughs> and it would be interesting to dive into the role-playing game because to actually see if they follow the stories or if someone wrote new stories or how it all works together. So I'm going to be a hex and wolf in the role-playing game. <laughs> Give me that belt, yo. <laughs> Well, that's it for John and Phoenix. We are going to welcome author David M. Ewalt into the show. John, Phoenix, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our guest today is David M. Ewalt, journalist for the Wall Street Journal and author of Of Dice and Men, The Story of Dungeons and Dragons and the People Who Play It, and Defying Reality, the inside story of the virtual reality revolution. He's spoken at Gen Con, PAX, and Comic-Con, and appeared on ABC's Good Morning America, NPR's All Things Considered, and various other networks. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you say that your career is flatlined now that you're on the Outside is Overrated podcast? I think it's uh, it's just on the up and up. This is the peak so far. After this, it's like a Nobel, right? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, that's very high praise, and I appreciate it. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your career? Where are you from, and how did you end up covering emerging technologies? So uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., and, you know, probably like a lot of the people listening to your podcast, I was, you know, a really geeky kid. I was into computers and into tech and, you know, and into gaming, and so it just became uh, a natural interest for me. When I got into college, I was going to be a scientist, but I realized working on the school paper that that was what really excited me that I liked writing about science and technology more than I actually liked doing it and having the background of like yeah being a geeky kid and knowing how to use a computer made it a lot easier to write about the computer business and write about the the IT industry because I knew the topics whereas a lot of other journalists had no technology background and they'd come in to cover a company like Microsoft and not really have any idea what they were talking about so there are ways that being a geek pays off. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, speaking of emerging technologies, did you cover the Consumer Electronics Show this year? Or what was the most notable new technology from your point of view? You know, so I didn't cover CES this year, which I'm so thrilled about because I'll sort of sideline your question by saying <laughs> CES is like... CES is one of those things that everyone on the outside is like, oh, CES is so awesome. Like, I'd love to go there. But like, I don't know a single journalist who doesn't hate CES at this point, just because it's so big. And this year of being virtual, that was not the case. But like, man, I'm so glad I didn't have to be there in those 
it's just it's so huge and it's so much work i i wear like one of those fitness trackers and the last time i did ces two years ago one of the days of ces i walked 19 miles wow in a day just around the floor so so that said no i'm glad not to have to actually go out to vegas this year and cover that but i mean there's been there's a lot of cool stuff coming out uh, that was announced i think you know there was some really cool automotive tech that I saw this year. And also I continue to be really excited about virtual reality and augmented reality. You know, we haven't gotten new headsets that I was hoping would be announced at CES this year, but that's the, the technology that I'm most excited about. And I think we're going to see some really cool stuff this year. Well, that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. What are some of the other coolest things that you've covered in the last couple of years? Well, I mean, <laughs> This year has been very unusual, obviously, because of the coronavirus. And so a lot of my coverage very quickly pivoted to those sort of emerging emerging medical and crisis technologies, you know, things like, oh, we're developing new ways to identify viruses. I did one story for the journal. It's so, you know, kind of simple, but I thought it was amazing. There's this company that started tracking coronavirus infections by having filters installed in public sewers huh and so it's what was amazing to me is like they put these little boxes in the sewers and it literally just like toilet water like people flush their toilets and that human waste goes through these boxes and they can tell from just analyzing like the pee in the sewer they can see how many people have covid they can see like how many people in that area have like diabetes they've used this for tracking drug abuse like to know like oh there's a lot of people in this area who's taking a ton of opioids and stuff just like the amount of information you can get from these high-tech boxes in the sewers is crazy and it was just an interesting way to for me of saying like this is a weird passive way that we've never really thought about but you can really use this technology to get an idea of the overall health of an area and they can drill it down because it's in the sewers it's not just like oh the city you can tell like block to block how many people have covid based on what's in the sewers so that was really cool there's been some of the other pandemic stuff there's a lot of really interesting work being done right now in making safe office spaces about like different ways to to uh, kill bacteria and to kill viruses in the office but also i'm i'm intrigued by some of the ideas of tracking workers you know because a lot of offices don't want people now getting within six feet of each other so some of these offices are like oh well you wear a little bluetooth tag on your id badge and it'll tell you if you've gotten too close to another employee or if someone does get diagnosed with an illness we can then alert everyone that they've come in contact with in the office and i don't think i like that idea but it's really interesting of like this is sort of the next wave of living in in, in america it's like yeah we're, like, we're gonna be a lot of companies are gonna want to track like literally your every movement and know like who you were standing next to at the water cooler so it's those are interesting stories to write yeah no doubt thinking about that and tracking technology is that something that was pioneered in professional sports leagues and is now being adapted for the office or who was exactly on the cutting edge of that kind of technology well, what it comes from is so there's the most uh, most of the work in that area right now is kind of coming from retail. A lot of people don't realize this, but when you walk into pretty much any major chain store, like if you walk into Target, I don't want to space specifically Target because I haven't know I don't know if they are doing this. I would bet they are, but if you walk into like a big retail store, um, they have 
trackers in the stores that are like pinging your phone. So they know you entered the store and they can even know beyond that, like, did you go into the food section or did you go into the, uh, into the electronic section? And then if you also happen to have the Target app on your phone, now they're associating that with your identity and your account. So now they know you walked into a Target and you went to the electronic section and you stood in the aisle in front of the PS5s, but then you walked out without buying anything because you didn't stand in front of a register. Hmm. So a lot of stores are already doing, maybe not with that level of of detail, but are already doing that sort of like location-based analysis of people moving around. It's also got some really interesting advertising uh, uh, repercussions, but I think retail's really pushed forward ahead on that. And a lot of the companies which are now looking at COVID tracking using that technology are like, that was their first act as they learned to do this stuff, starting to build systems for retail. And now they're like, hey, wait, we can take this to a company and have this like be in your office or be in your warehouse. That is both fascinating and terrifying. I know, right? That's kind of my job right now, a combination of fascinating and terrifying. It's, you know, it's really like every, every, every now and then I, I keep having this thought of like, you know, I was really into like cyberpunk and Shadowrun when I was a kid. And I was, wait a minute, we kind of are living in the cyberpunk world right now. Like a lot of this really scary stuff is actually happening. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is. Well, we're a gaming podcast, so we're going to drill in, drill deeper with both of your books. Uh, can you tell us about the nerd culture growing up on the East Coast? The like the the geek culture on the East Coast. Well, um, where I grew up, it was I, I think probably not unusual. I mean, it was like anywhere else. There's every school. You know, we had you had you know, it's like the Breakfast Club model, right? You had the jocks, you had the the popular kids, you had the nerdy kids, and you know, every school had the little the little uh, uh, group of gamers. Um, there was a small but uh, active group of kids who were into uh, uh, role-playing games and tabletop games in my schools. Um, you know, usually never more than like a dozen kids or so who were all my friends. But we, you know, we played a lot of D&D growing up and some of the other uh, games of that era. You know, we'd be at the Top Secret and stuff like that, and GURPS and metamorphosis alpha and some of those those rpgs um this was also you know i'm old enough too so that the the sort of the electronic gaming scene was mostly like nintendo entertainment system or the local arcade you know that was the days when you'd really still be going down and putting coins in and playing pac-man or gauntlet or something like that so that was part of the experience as well but really what we got passionate about was playing role-playing games and it was always interesting because so i know you're like out in the great lakes area and it was always interesting to us that like it was sort of like a weird mecca in a way because here i am in virginia and all the books we got would say like lake geneva wisconsin and so i'd always think of like wisconsin and michigan and all these far away gaming paradises that like we'd read about in magazines but there's like seemed so magical and far away where all the cool conventions and people lived was funny but we did have our own culture in the sense that there was like a game store in town and there was kids who would always be there yeah that's awesome for a lot of our audience a lot of us grew up in small town minnesota so like i'm from a town of 3,000. we did have one gaming store but there were maybe five kids in my grade that played any tabletop role-playing games through high school so it was a very very small niche thing a lot of us didn't kind of hit our nerd stride until say college yeah, I think that's true of a lot of, of folks. I mean, I went to a pretty big high school. We had like 
I don't know, probably like, I think it was like 1500 students or something like that. So, so there was a decent representation of geeks there, but yeah, a lot of people I know sort of found their way in college because that's when you get your chance to be around more like-minded people, right? My school, my college had a, had a really great uh, science fiction club and, you know, it was a place where you would go to watch sci-fi movies and fantasy and check out books from their library. And they did a ton of gaming there too. And we actually had a, a, a a sci-fi and gaming convention on campus every spring you know people would come from all over to come to this big gaming convention and that was super exciting because i'd never been to a gaming convention before college and suddenly there was like oh wait now there's going to be like this weekend right where you live four different dudes who are on the cast of star trek are going to show up and talk and there's going to be sci-fi movies playing in the auditoriums and there's going to be people playing D and D in all these different rooms is like, this is heaven. <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds like a great experience. You wrote, yeah, it was really fun. You wrote of Dyson men. Can you walk us through how this book came to be, where the inspiration came from and some of the planning process for it? Sure. Well, well, as I said, you know, I did grow up playing a lot of D and D and playing a lot of role playing games and it became kind of the center of my social life and my friends you know i had my group of of closest friends you know five or six people and and you know we did lots of things together you know we we're typical teenagers but we would always also play role-playing games and the big our big campaign in in high school ended up being shadow run we had a shadow run campaign that that went for years and that would be like a weekly thing and so it was really into it and i played a lot and then i kind of had the opposite experience from some people that when I went off to college, I actually sort of stopped playing those games, partly because I was maybe reinventing myself, but, you know, wanting to try other things. So I didn't have a weekly role-playing game in college. I still played a few times, but I didn't have a weekly, a weekly campaign. And then I graduated from college and I started getting into journalism. And because of my background, I was drawn to stories about the gaming industry and I'm covering tech and business. And so I started covering the video game industry, which traditionally at that point was not, or even still today, does not really get well covered by uh, the business press and by the mainstream press. You know, they kind of underestimate the size of the gaming business. We get lots of journalists covering Hollywood and covering movies and covering music, but like they forget that, you know, video games make a lot more money than the music industry. So anyway, so I started covering those stories for Forbes magazine, writing about the video game industry. And when I would meet with video game executives, just as like a get to know them kind of thing, I would always say to those executives, so what made you want to work in the video game business? Like, why did you start a video game company? That kind of thing. And I swear, like nine times out of 10, it was shocking how often the answer from these executives was, well, you know, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. And it really got me thinking of like, not only was, you know, this obviously a popular game, but I started thinking that the game itself was so influential that the game helped create this generation of people who wanted to be creators and storytellers in their own right. So it wasn't just, oh, I played a lot of D&D because everybody played D&D in the 80s. It was 
I played a lot of D&D and that trained me to think about how to tell a story, how to engage the viewer, how to get participants excited and telling their own story. And so that's when I really started thinking about the book and saying like, you know, how did this influential game, which really gave birth to an entire generation of content creators, of authors, of movie makers, of, of, uh, of writers, of businessmen, how did this game come to be? Where did it come from? And how did it get so important? And what has this influence on our society really been about? So that was the book. I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was fantastic how you weave both the history of the game and your own experiences with it together in sort of a narrative style. I thought I really loved it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And and that was one of the challenges going in is that like, I knew there was sort of two ways to write that book. One would be I could just write it for D&D fans and like give them the history that, you know, you already know who Gary Gygax is, but maybe there's some details that I can tell you about his life that you don't know. But I wanted to also make it more accessible and make it so that people who had never played D&D could actually understand what this game is beyond just the stereotypes of it and really get a feel for how it worked and why it's so great and why role-playing games engage people the way they do. So that's what I tried to do with telling some of the stories from my own campaigns is give those people a real feeling for this is what role-playing is. This is why the games are awesome. It's not just, you know, so it's not an abstract thing for them. Sure. Now the book was pretty successful. What are some of the doors it opened or some of the cool things you got to do as a result of your book? Uh, well, I mean, this I mean, this conversation we're having is one of the best things. Like, I love that the way that it's connected me with other people in the game industry and in fandom. And I've met so many interesting people, had so many cool conversations. It was also just, I mean, it was every sort of gamer nerd's fantasies, like reporting the book and putting it together. I mean, I've gotten to go to Wizards of the Coast headquarters and meet the designers and play D&D with D&D's designers, both the current ones, but also like I've now gamed with, you know, members of the Gygax family and with some of the great designers from TSR in the 80s and like gotten to go to all these different conventions and play with cool people there. So that's probably the best thing is now, you know, when I get invited to a convention, you know, it's an honor to go and talk to a convention, but really what I get excited about is like, oh God, I get to go to this convention and look, oh, Dave Wesley's going to be there. I get to play a game with Dave Wesley at this convention. That's amazing. So stuff like that has really been, been exciting. That's awesome. Where would you rank yourself in the pantheon of nerds now? You're, you've reached a level of celebrity status, but how, uh, <laughs> how high have you ascended? Well, I think the, the, uh, the defining characteristic of being a nerd is that you would never actually rate yourself high on any such list. So I can't imagine that I would be anywhere near the top of that list. But what I like is that I've met so many of the people who are sort of like the, you know, I had an amazing interaction with some, with, you know, with some of the guys from Critical Role or just like, you know, Liam from Critical Role one day would like message me on Twitter. He was like, I read your book. And I was like, holy shit, you're on Critical Role. Like you're one of the, you're so famous. And like, we're, you know, that's what's exciting is being able to meet a lot of those people. That's awesome. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the hard copy edition of Dyson Men came out shortly before the release of D&D 5.0. How do you think this edition did at uniting the different generations of D&D players, and what are your opinions of the system? 
So I like 5th edition a lot. Um, I think that Wizards of the Coast has done a really good job making a game that is sort of, that feels like D&D, but is not too complicated, that is accessible to anyone, that is easy to learn, easy to get into. And I think that's one of the big reasons why there's been such a big boom in new players coming into the hobby in the last couple of years. Um, I, I've used the, the rules in my own campaign. I play in another campaign with one of my friends who's the DM and he uses fifth edition. I think they're great because they're easy. They don't get in the way of the role playing and they're detailed enough to provide a structure. I still have a soft spot for some of the other rule sets. Like I will always love uh, 3.5 and 3.0 just because they're sort of the opposite. They're so detailed and they're so nerdy. And I love the level of detail you can get into with really like working out the rules and even like rules lawyering and like building out a really complicated epic level character and like but that's not for everybody right so i love those rules and they're fun but i really appreciate fifth edition for like you know i've been able to sit down i teach you know my eight-year-old niece and nephew like i can get playing with fifth edition with them that wouldn't have worked with 3.5 if i tried to teach an eight-year-old 3.5 i'm sure there are eight-year-olds who have learned it but it's not as easy to get into as fifth edition. Yeah, they wouldn't be truly engaged. You'd just be telling them which die to pick up and roll. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the things you talked about in the book was running your very first campaign as the DM. How did that go, and what were some of the memorable moments? You know, uh, a lot of it has been memorable. I think one of the coolest things that I have found is, you know, I, I, everybody approaches being a DM with, like, bringing different skills to it. You know, some people are performers and they're going to do voices and they're going to really like draw their characters in that way some people are very meticulous planners and they're going to have really complicated traps and and smart enemies and you know really detailed maps and i try to do all that stuff because it's fun but i think one of my coming into being a dm one of my big plans was oh well i'm a, a writer i'm a storyteller like I'll come up with a really detailed story, like a backstory. So I sort of almost like sketched out a kind of outline for like, it was, it was like writing a fantasy book, kind of like, here's the characters and here's the plots. And so it was very plot oriented. And, you know, I was approaching it that way. Like I'm writing a fantasy novel, but then it was fascinating for me to get in as DM and like, oh, I wrote this really interesting story for this session. And the players are just not going to do anything that I thought they were going to do. And the story is not going to work. They're not even going to learn any of this stuff. I remember one session where I had planned out this whole trap involving a magic mirror that they were going to get sucked into. And the whole session was going to be on the other side of the mirror. The players come into this room where the magic mirror is and I'm describing the room and I'm like, and there's a magic, there's, I don't I didn't say it was magic, but I was like, so this is the room and there's a mirror hanging on the wall. And one of the players says, I run into the room and I smash the mirror. <laughs> Just like, okay, so it was great, but it ended up being fun. I had to think on my feet and totally invent another storyline. But like, that's one of the things that's been most exciting for me as DM is just like, learning to tell a story to improvise and to have that back and forth with the players and sometimes the best things that happen are like well i didn't plan for this but i love that this is the solution that you've come up with so let's go with that and see what you figure out like it's really cool to have that back and forth 
That's awesome. A lot of us have had to change our gaming habits because of the pandemic this year. What are some of the ways COVID-19 has forced you to change your role-playing habits? Well, I mean, like I said, I'm playing in a couple campaigns. We haven't sat down in the same room since, I think probably since January of last year. So it's probably been over 12 months that we were in the same room. Um, We've moved entirely virtual. We're playing on uh, Roll20 and using... Uh, using usually Google Hangouts or something like that to do our audio and video while we have like the virtual tabletop. Um, we've also, um, you know, we like most groups, whenever we get together, we would play D&D, but we'd also, you know, play a, a tabletop game or something. Or, so we were also using tabletop simulator. We're playing even virtual board games. And on one hand, it, you know, you miss being in the same room as your friends and you, you can never get the same sort of level of, interaction with people virtually that you could get in the same space but i think we're actually meeting more often than we did before this because it's always hard especially as you get older and your friends start being like well now they have kids and all this other stuff like it can sometimes be very hard to get people into the same room for four or five hours every single week to play but if you can do it all virtually, like that's a lot easier. Like I don't have to get a babysitter because I can just go into the other room and turn on the computer. So I, that's one of the things I've really liked about this new way of gaming is that, yeah, you know, it's a, it has its ups and has its downs. And one of the nice things is that it's, it's easier. It's a lower bar to entry. And I think that's too, a lot of new people have started playing during the pandemic because, well, maybe because they're bored, but also because like, yeah, just sit down in front of your computer and we'll get on, get on a video call. We can on Zoom and play D&D. Ah, it's been a very interesting year. Shifting gears to your second book, Defying Reality, the inside story of the virtual reality revolution. This book stemmed from a Forbes cover story you wrote on the Oculus Rift and its creator, Palmer Lucky. Tell us about this book and some of the lessons you learned along the way. So I... Um, when I tell people these stories, I was always like, I start to realize that my entire career is based on like doing the stuff I wanted to do when I was a kid, but but couldn't. Um, And so the VR thing was kind of the same. You know, when I was a kid, I was into stuff like cyberpunk and Shadowrun, And I thought VR was really awesome. I remember reading like William Gibson's Neuromancer and Brooke like that. And always wanted to get and thought VR was so cool and futuristic. Of course, it wasn't like the actual products that came out just sucked and made you sick and you couldn't use them. And it was it was such an amazing idea in fiction and gaming, but just so disappointing in reality. So then when the Oculus Rift was announced, and this was an early HMD, an early headset that um, was put out on Kickstarter. And that's when I first heard of it was like they had this Kickstarter launch and the Kickstarter had, you know, one of the guys who was the creators of Doom, John Carmack, and Gabe Newell, who's the inventor of Steam and the CEO of Valve Corporation. Like, I had all these amazing people saying, this hardware is great. Like, this is actually a good headset. And that was exciting that, like, what you mean somebody has actually made a good VR headset? And I tried it. And it actually worked. It was really cool. And so that's why I started, I did that first cover story for Forbes. It was the first uh first business magazine that had covered oculus and did a big story about him and just the more that i started talking to these people and especially trying out the hardware 
like going to some of these VR conventions and putting on the, the headsets that were coming out and doing some of these laboratory experiments, I realized like, oh, this isn't just like a cool gadget. Like, oh, I'm excited this is coming out, like the new iPhone, you know? I was like, this is transformative. Like this technology really is, like we are going to a place where it's gonna be the metaverse, where it's gonna be, you know, a, a, a whole nother world that we're moving into. And I realized that there's like a profound change coming. Um, the other thing that really excited me, which I hadn't even thought about is the more I started looking at VR, I realized that augmented reality, which is like Google Glass or Microsoft HoloLens or things like that, wearing goggles that put the digital into our real world, so you're not cut off to the real world, that that was going to be even bigger. I think VR is amazing because VR is a whole nother reality, but I think 10, 20 years from now, augmented reality is going to be a way bigger business. It's just going to be everywhere because it it doesn't cut you off from the real world. So that was the thinking there. As I started doing those technologies and just realizing, oh, this is this is going to be super, super huge. And that's what I wanted to do with the book, which is to explore that, especially it being like the early years of this technology. It was an opportunity to be like, wow, you know, what would I have done if I was in Michigan in the 1920s, you know, and watching the birth of the auto industry, like that's kind of the way I saw this. Fascinating. Uh, what is the current state of VR and how has it changed since the book came out? Well, so when the book came out, the first, uh, the first headsets of this new generation, so the big one being the Oculus Rift, but also there's, there was the HTC Vive and uh, there was a couple of more portable ones. Those had just come out when the first book came out. And the first book talks about the launch of those initial ones. Those, that hardware was great and really revolutionary, all of those headsets. But they were very expensive, required really high-powered computers. So it was a super niche product. I think the big change over the years since that book came out has been the move towards portable all-in-one headsets. Um, Oculus, for instance, has the Quest and the Quest 2, which you don't have to plug into a computer. Um, it's a great headset. The experience with it is really good, and it costs like 400 bucks, so it's still expensive, but it doesn't require you know 600 bucks plus a $2,000 computer. Um, and I think we're finally at the point where this has been a niche thing that's just been like bubbling for a couple of years. Um, but I think th those headsets are moving it to stage two. Um, there's a couple, you know, in, in the business world, they talk a lot about like these different, these different charts of how technologies get adopted that like there's a peak up front when the exciting new stuff comes out. And then there's the trough of disillusionment when people try that exciting new hardware and they're like, yeah, you know, it's not what it craft up, but then it starts mainstreaming and ticking up again. And we're on that mainstreaming ticking up thing again, that like each year, these really good headsets are going to be cheaper and cheaper, and there's going to be more amazing content for them. The games were finally getting really high quality games and there's going to be more, I think, uh, more movies and media originally built for VR and it's just it's just going to get a lot bigger. And then when the AR stuff starts happening more, you know, the minute that Apple decides here are our smart glasses, it's game generation of this, of all of this uh, 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 
virtual and augmented reality stuff is just going to blow up. No doubt. That's so interesting. And for me, like being cordless is the biggest thing. So the Quest and the Quest 2 are super exciting. And just to put the price into context, like now a Quest 2 costs less than a PS5 or an Xbox Series X. So like it's no longer the most expensive gaming option on the market. Yeah, and it's so unique. I mean, look, I I have gaming consoles too, but like there's all this talk about like you would get the Xbox or the PS or there's not really that much difference. I know a real gamer nerd is going to argue with me about frame rates and about things like that, but it's mostly the same games. There's a few exclusives, but like you get one of these VR headsets and it's games that you can't play anywhere. You literally can't play those games unless you have the VR headset and you can't have those experiences and it's just such a different world. And it's so exciting because it's, we don't see a lot of stuff that's totally new, but this it's totally new. It is such a fascinating new technology. What's next for you? What's your next big project? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of fishing around for stuff. I'm really, you know, I'm enjoying after having written two books in the space of about five years, I'm enjoying not writing books for the moment, you know, because it's so much work. Um, but I am uh, got a couple of larger projects thinking about. I'm starting to think about uh, doing some fiction. A lot of people have asked me, like, oh, you should write up some of your D&D campaign or some of the stuff you talked about in of Dyson Men, like do that as like a fantasy novel. I'm playing with that idea. I've also been doing a lot of game design sort of moving past you know initially having my campaign to but to writing up some game supplements and stuff like that and that's very early but i'm hoping that's you know as i was looking a week or two ago of like oh what are my projects for 2021 i think one of my big projects for this year is like yeah i want to write like up a gaming supplement like do like a a whole module or something and either give it away or just like put it up on on drive through rpg or something like that but i've never done that before and i think it would be a lot of fun well, that would be awesome. We'd love to hear how it goes. What's the best way for people to follow you? Um, the best way is probably to go to my website, which is davidmewalt.com, um, because everything else is linked there. Uh, my Twitter, uh, There's I have a email newsletter that people can sign up for there. Um, I have never really in the last couple of years haven't used it much, but that's another one of my of my resolutions for 2021. I'm going to actually uh, update my email newsletter from time to time. So all the contact details are there. And, you know, my email address is up there too. I always tell people, you know, I might take forever to email you back because I get a gazillion emails, especially for work. But uh, yeah, people can email me too. I love hearing from people. Yeah, well, that's how we got connected for this podcast. So I really appreciate you joining us today. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I was really glad to talk to you. Our guest today was David M. Ewalt. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Outside is Overrated. Next month, Phoenix and I will welcome Billy back to the show to discuss Wonder Woman. We'll cover Wonder Woman 84 and the Wonder Woman cooperative board game. Thank you so much for listening. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Phoenix and John, I'm Tom Sidlachik at Tom Sidlachik OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids. Tonight we learned that Casey doesn't know how to use a headset.
That is very true. At least my computer decided to not let me use my headset. He just didn't want me to hear you guys is all. Yeah, I mean, we could hear you perfectly. Like Joey said, we should just push ahead with the segment as is and just have you take your best guess based on the captions. That would have been fun. That's a good challenge. The scenes, I'm going to look at a tally how many times Tom restarted. Just yes. like how many times Joey has to restart Fire Emblem. <laughs> <clears throat> I know how to read. I can say things good. 